The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Operation Paperclip. That's what we'll be talking about this week. In the final days of World War II and after the war was over, the U.S. government helped hundreds and hundreds of Nazi scientists whose knowledge and expertise was deemed crucial to the development of advanced weapons. No matter how complicit they were in heinous Nazi activities, to relocate to the states and become integral pieces of the U.S. military industrial complex. The U.S. wanted them to continue their work on creating atomic bombs, weaponizing plagues, making chemical weapons, and sometimes even experimenting on people in ways that certainly violate the do-not-harm oath the doctors take to find out either how enemies would be affected by weapons, how U.S. soldiers and civilians might best recover from the devastating effects of their attacks, and more. In the U.S. government, a paperclip was affixed to the files of various scientists who were deemed desirable to recruit. And thus, Operation Paperclip received its name. And many former followers of Hitler were assigned some paperclips at least around 1,600, based on what we currently know. And these recruits did contribute to the strength of the U.S. military, heavily. Their research aided both non-military and civilian technical and medical progress. Without them, we wouldn't have so much of the research now essential to live in our modern world. Everything from insecticides to weapons of mass destruction to cancer treatments developed and or dramatically improved through American-funded Nazi research. Even some of the technology used in space exploration generated on the backs of human experiments and labor in concentration camps. And all this begs the age-old question, do the ends justify the means? Did certain Nazis being really, really good at science justify them getting away with some really serious crimes against humanity? The U.S. today is a world leader in medical, military, and other sciences in part because of the work Operation Paperclip scientists did after they came over from Germany after they willingly committed heinous crimes on behalf of the Nazi war effort. Their contributions likely changed the outcome of the Cold War, and thus the world as a whole. And even if they hadn't been recruited by the United States, it's not like all of our modern tech, medicine, weapons, etc. would have been developed ethically without them. That's another thing to consider in this episode. 
The U.S. had been conducting its own unethical experiments prior to World War II and would continue to do so after World War II with and without former Nazis. When it really comes down to it, there are few areas of scientific progress that have not been tainted at some point in their history by immoral or unethical behavior. Going to tread some murky waters today as we dive into a morally ambiguous, Nazi as fuck, top secret, classified edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Hey, uh, how about you try and ignore some of the craziness that may surround you right now and escape with me for a few hours into some very interesting history. Work and wait. Checking that news feed for more stories you probably already read, more stories that are probably just going to piss you off. I can probably wait too, right? Uh, Hail Nimrod, love you, Lucifina, praiseable jangles, and Yamo am right here, Triple M. I'm Dan Cummins, Nimrod's bootlicker, Luc- Lucifina's wardrobe stylist, and you are listening to Time Suck. Still no stand-up tour dates to announce. Uh, currently hoping, and this feels very promising at the moment, to restart my stand-up tour, uh, <laughs> delayed almost a year now, at the end of this summer in August. Very optimistic that at that point, shit will be consistently opened up uh, around the nation. If it's not, well, uh, I'm going to have a, a lot more to worry about than silly old stand-up comedy. And so will everybody else. So hopefully everything's opened up by then. For the time being, thanks for letting me get lost in some podcasts. Thanks for getting lost with me. Uh, super weird new shirt at badmagicmerch.com in the store today. A Dahmer's Wings and Things t-shirt. Jeffrey Dahmer and Chicken Wings combined. Finally! After so much demand. Uh, been a long time since we covered Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, you know, we didn't ever do a, a Jeffrey Dahmer Chicken Wings joke, but our in-house art warlock, Logan Keith, felt inspired, came up with something unique and weird, thought it was funny, and so do I. And so it lives. Uh, thanks again to all of our Patreon supporters for allowing us to donate $11,600 this month to the Riggins Idaho EMTs. My grandma Betty handed the check over personally, and I guess the uh, woman who received it at City Hall uh, literally burst into tears. Well, she didn't She didn't literally burst, but you get it. She uh, she cried. They never get donations. Not like that. It's going to help them so damn much. So thank you, thank you. Uh, Facebook.com slash Riggins Ambulance if you'd like to donate more yourself. And thank you for the continued ratings and reviews. For Time Suck Online, very humbling and motivating. And last quick message before we jump into today's tale. Uh, for my American meat sacks, don't believe all the hype. We are still one nation undivided. Might not always feel like it, but I do believe it. Don't let media focus on extremists on either side of the aisle. Make you forget that there's a great, big, relatively silent majority right there in the middle. Don't let the fact that you saw Biden sign uh, make you think your neighbor wants to turn America into some Stalinist dumpster fire of communist gulags in despair. And don't let the fact that you saw a Trump sign make you think your neighbor, uh, you know, thought the QAnon capital raid was true patriotism or that they want to turn America into a white supremacist wasteland. A lot of moderate liberals and conservatives out there in America. A lot of good liberals and good conservatives. Truly, truly, uh, I know many of both. Don't fall into the wrong echo chamber or house of mirrors and let it distract you from the fact that America's almost always run from the fucking center. So hail Nimrod to you all. And now, let's get Nazi. Uh, wait, poor poor wording cho- choice. Uh, let's, let's not get Nazi. Let's not ever get Nazi. Uh, let's instead explore some Nazi history. Much better wording. Today on Time Suck. Operation Paperclip was a post-war U.S. intelligence program that uh, brought German scientists, many of whom were very active in the National Socialist 
aka Nazi party, to America under secret military contracts. In many cases, these people literally got away with murder, sometimes a, a lot of murder, mass murder, and torture, all kinds of torture of innocent people, young and old alike. Under Operation Paperclip, which officially began in July of 1945, but was preceded by several uh, lead-up missions and recruiting and even the same operation under a different title, German scientists worked to develop rockets, chemical and biological weapons, aviation and space medicine, and a lot of other military-grade weaponry during a time when America really needed it, the Cold War. Easy, Bojangles. The communists don't win in this story. You know that. Sorry, three-legged commie-hating, one-eyed pitbull mascot Bojangles, uh, Really been on edge recently. Anyway, roughly 1,600 scientists were recruited by U.S. spies as part of Operation Paperclip around the end of World War II. So many, and many of these scientists were and still are seen as some of the most brutal war criminals of their time. Not all of them, to be sure, were high-level, ecstatic to be along for Hitler's ride, hateful to the core Nazi fucks. Some were just talented nerds who just happened to be German. Like everyone, when a war breaks out, you know, they didn't pick where they were born and they weren't overjoyed about who was in charge of their nation. But many of them were Hitler fans, for sure. They were men who advanced through the ranks of the Nazi hierarchy in part because they were very down for the cause. Very, very hard to make the case that all these elite brains were just doing their job, just following orders. You know, if they didn't comply, they'd be killed. Many of them could have definitely escaped from Germany as the war effort was ramping up. They had the means, they had the chance, they didn't take the chance. Some of them were literally award-winning Nazis. They liked being there. Eight of the scientists who had come over, Otto Ambros, Theodor Benziger, uh, Kurt Blum, Walter Dornberger, Siegfried Niemeyer, uh, Walter Schreiber, Walter Schieber, not repeating the same name, one letter different from the last Walter, uh, Werner von Braun, each at some point worked hand in hand with the most powerful Nazis of all. Uh, Hermann Goering, uh, Heinrich Himmler, Adolf Hitler. I wonder if Hitler ever confused two of those Walters. Send in Walter Schreiber immediately to talk to him about the experiments. Yes, Führer. At once, Führer. Uh, yes, Hitler. It is I, Walter Schreiber. Uh, here to talk about the experiments. Nein! You're the wrong Walter! I want to talk to Schreiber, not Schreiber. This is why we're losing the war. Too many Walters. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that was. Maybe that happened. Uh, also, I think we have to uh, uh, bring back crazy Hi uh, Himmler from the Nazi search for the Holy Grail again, right? Love me some, some, some mockery. Uh, making some mockery out of a crazy Himmler and his pet psychic, Carl Villigat who literally was trying to find the sword of destiny and secret tunnels leading to Thule, some Aryan realm of Nazi giants living inside the hollow earth. If you missed that episode, so much crazy. If you recall uh, that from our Nazi search from the Holy Grail suck, if you did hear it. That's my good friend, Carl. He's, he's making a map of the Thule entrances so we can find the magic visit vaults to make ice giants or something to win the war for Hitler. I forget exactly what kind of hocus pocus he is cooking up. I, I love him so. He's such a wonderful mind. Carl and I are so excited to work with all these vaulters. Uh, so much insanity with the Nazis. Going over a lot of it today. Instead of looking into their insane occult beliefs, going to be looking at their insane treatment of, you know, random other meat sacks instead. Many of the Operation Paperclip scientists were dedicated members of the Nazi party. Ten of them had also joined the ultra-violent, ultra-nationalistic Nazi party paramilitary squads, the SA, the Stormtroopers, and the SS. And you didn't become a member of the SS by being kind of, sort of, into Hitler and his ideology, for the most part. Uh, one branch of the SS ran the concentration camps. Another branch enforced Hitler's horrible racist agenda among the civilian public. Many of the SS were the worst of the worst. SS has been described as the foremost agency of security, surveillance, and terror within Germany and German-occupied Europe. Two Operation Paperclip recruits even wore the Golden Party badge on their suits. 
which indicated either long-standing and unbroken loyalty to the party since 1933 or special favor from the Führer, or both. As a scientist, you only got this badge if you're one of Hitler's favorite pet Nazi nerds. Good nerd. Himmler, do you like this nerd? I'm quite fond of him. Oh, yeah, I love this nerd. Hitler, good Walter. What a good Nazi boy. Uh, like I said earlier, not all these recruits were people who happened to be born in Nazi Germany and became scientists and engineers. Some of them seem to have became scientists and engineers to help Nazi Germany, to further the ideology of Aryan supremacy. And it was some of these men who came to the United States at the behest of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Some of these men were welcomed by Uncle Sam into the arms of America. Why? Because the U.S. was worried that if they didn't grab these Nazi scientists, the Soviet Union would. And I have to say, that was not some unfounded fear. The Soviets were 100% for sure scooping up former Nazi scientists for their own military death machine after World War II. Stalin also coveted his pet Nazi nerds. In Operation Ossovikum, uh, it's a, oh, this fucking word, yikes. I said it a lot of times before the show and I knew once I encountered it in conversation, God, it's gonna be rough. Ossovikum. Uh, <laughs> Okay, fun. Uh, the Soviets recruited 2,200 German specialists, a total of more than 6,000 people, including family members, during just one night on October 22nd, 1946. Just one night they did this. Over 6,000 people and scientific equipment all moved into Russian hands. The Russians literally attempted to transplant entire research and production centers, such as a relocated V-2 rocket center from Germany to the Soviet Union, and collect as much as mat uh, material as possible. So if the U.S. would not have recruited or imprisoned or killed the scientists they did recruit into Operation Paperclip, the Russians would have almost certainly brought them east for their own Cold War purposes. And the U.S. would use this reality to justify doing what they did. Both Russia and the U.S. also seemed to justify doing what they did under a spoils of war mentality. They'd won the war, right? They defeated Nazi Germany, and therefore they felt entitled to certain spoils, like innovations that the Germans had made. Even if these innovations were made under some of the most evil conditions man had come up with and any future innovations that could be made by Nazi scientists, more spoils of war. All right, enough premise establishment. Uh, let's set up the more specific dirt we're going to get into now and then get into it. In order to cover Operation Paperclip, we'll have to first look at just how far Nazi scientists managed to push ethics in their experiments back home in Hitler's Germany. Then we'll look at some of the Nazis who would get a second chance at life in America you know, and get some American citizenship via Operation Paperclip before diving into this week's Time Suck timeline that will include not just important Operation Paperclip dates, but also a history of unethical forays into medical experimentation, biological warfare, and more conducted by American scientists before and after World War II to illustrate this story isn't as simple as Nazi scientists bad, American scientists good. Not at all. So what were the Nazis up to during the war? Exactly what kind of ethical breaches did the Nazis commit? Well, from what I can tell, they really didn't do anything wrong or bad. Uh, you know, they seemed deep down like good guys, just kind of doing what they thought was best for the nation. You know, uh, full disclosure, all of uh, my Nazi research today came from stormfront.org. Uh, it was the most credible website I could find when it came to researching, uh, you know, uh, the Nazis. Uh, JK, gosh dang! So much JK. Stormfront.org is a white supremacist, Holocaust-denying, Nazi-loving racial hate site and forum for paranoid racist lunatics. It's been around since 1996. Uh, go there if you want nothing but the fakest of fake news. It's fucking trash. Uh, the Nazis, of course, committed all kinds of historical atrocities and ethical breaches. To think otherwise is to be, well, you know, really bad at thinking. For starters, it's well known that Nazi Germany, especially during the Holocaust, used human beings as slave labor. 
And they saw nothing wrong with using lives. They saw as 100% expendable as lab rats as well. The people who inhabited their concentration camps, Jews from across Europe, Romani people, ethnic Poles, Soviet POWs, homosexuals, mentally disabled Germans, and more, often quickly put to death in gas chambers or shot and thrown in mass graves. Often, they were also worked to death, which to me might be more cruel than a quick death in a gas chamber or death via a firing squad. Millions worked for Germany during the war, furthering the efforts of the very war machine that focused on eradicating them, working under the constant fear of death, working while being fed starvation rations, while being beaten, while watching their fellow prisoners, friends, lovers, family, their children continually die around them. Sometimes these prisoners were also cruelly experimented on in ways similar to what Unit 731 did on behalf of the Japanese government at the same time across the world. We covered those atrocities in our Unit 731 suck in November of 2017. Holy shit. Stomach-turning stuff. About as bad and dark as it gets. Like scientists working for the Japanese army, Nazi scientists cruelly experimented on people with no anesthesia. They conducted experiments that either fucked them up for the rest of their lives or killed them in very unnecessary and preposterously horrific ways. Unnecessary amputations, blindings, burnings, you name it, it was probably done. All done in the name of scientific progress. Rest of the world considered all these actions so depraved. There was even a special series of 12 trials during the Nuremberg trials, known as the doctor's trial, to specifically address these war crimes. Numerous Nazi doctors executed for their war crimes, as they should have been. Nazi physicians did truly horrific shit like bone transplantation, muscle and nerve transplants. In these experiments, subjects had their bones, muscles, nerves removed without anesthesia, put in somebody else without anesthesia, when one of Hitler's buddies, high-ranking SS officer Reinhard Heydrich, died from gangrene after wounds he sustained in a car bombing in 1942, after the wounds became infected, uh, Nazi doctors recreated his wounds and infections in concentration camp prisoners per his instructions. Men and women were operated on, again, with no painkillers. The Nazi doctors maximizing the potential for infection by inserting glass shards and bacteria into their wounds before sewing them back up all to try and find out how they could have saved Heydrich. Fucking insanity. Nazi doctors froze people to death. They gave others malaria and additional diseases. They did so much what the fuck shit, like uh, bashing children in the head with a mechanized hammer to study the effects of brain trauma on children, on people. They bashed one little boy over and over until he literally went insane, then killed him. They conducted unimaginable electroshock therapy with voltage levels that ranged all the way up to lethal. They killed innocent humans in high altitude, poison, and mustard gas experiments, and so many other ways. Arguably, the most infamous studies that took place in Nazi Germany at the hands of Nazi doctors, or in this case, mostly one doctor, uh, Joseph Mengele's study on twins. We can do a full suck on this son of a bitch. Joseph Mengele, someday probably will, dude did so many horrible things in his quest to help Hitler take over the world and remake it in his hellish image. Today, we'll dig into just his uh, infamous twin study. Experiments on twin children in concentration camps were done to try and prove the superiority of heredity over environment, nature over nurture, and to find ways to increase Aryans' reproduction rates. All things in line with Nazis' seriously fucked up worldview. They wanted to scientifically prove that white Germans were racially superior to all others and then to find out how to create the most of these white Germans as possible. They did not prove racial superiority on any level whatsoever, in case you were curious. And the conductor of many of the worst experiments towards these ends was Joseph Mengele, a.k.a. the Angel of Death. From 1943 to 1944, 
Mengele performed experiments on nearly 1,500 sets of imprisoned twins, almost 3,000 kids, at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Only about 200 children survived. These studies, roughly a 6% survival rate, so unbelievably fucked up, frightened children, siblings, painfully experimented on by a madman, literally tortured, almost always to the death. This is the kind of shit that makes current Holocaust deniers so hated by anybody fucking rational. You know, that it happened at all is obviously such a colossal, unnecessary injustice. And then to deny it, and not even a century later, another heinous, terrible injustice, such a dangerous kind of ignorance. When people were brought into Auschwitz-Birkenau, where the angel of death worked, more like the demon of death, twins were immediately separated from other prisoners at the camp's train platform at Mengele's instructions. They were then taken to a laboratory to be examined. Twins were arranged by age and sex and kept in crude barracks between experiments. These experiments included amputations, blood transfusions, infection with various diseases. Mengele even had dyes injected into the children's eyes to change their color in some of his experiments. No anesthetic. This, of course, was unbelievably painful, led to infections, temporary and or permanent blindness. Other mysterious injections uh, were given to just cause severe pain. Injections into the spine were given with no anesthesia. Diseases, including typhus, tuberculosis, uh, would uh, purposely be injected into one twin and not the other. And then when one died, the other healthy child was typically killed immediately to examine and compare the effects of the disease. Even more horrifying, Mengele once attempted to create a set of conjoined twins by fucking sewing two non-conjoined Romani kids together back to back. That's something straight out of like a lost episode of American Horror Story. Uh, this caused gangrene uh, and, of course, unimaginable pain and eventually both twins' deaths. Mengele saw twins as the perfect scientific opportunity because one twin could be experimented on while the other was kept as a control. Doctors could then look at the effects of experimentation and compare both bodies. This motherfucker was truly evil. Uh, Nimrod's butthole, far too good of a place for his soul to ever dwell. Witnesses later described this motherfucker literally whistling while he worked. Just a cartoonish monster, like the villain from some sort of torture porn horror film. Just sewing kids up and, you know, grabbing a Sammy, sipping on some soda, maybe putting on a record, listening to some classical music, talking about what a beautiful sunny day it was outside while, you know, some tortured child let out their fucking death rattle. Just 100% sociopath, truly zero empathy. After the war, one former prisoner would describe how Mengele once ripped an infant from its mother's womb, then literally hurled it into an oven to burn alive. He was furious it wasn't, uh, you know, one of a set of twins as he had hoped. Another told of a mother killing her own newborn infant right after birth so it would not starve in a Mengele experiment. Jesus Christ. Third witness recounted how Mengele kept hundreds of human eyeballs pinned to his lab wall, like a, quote, collection of butterflies. Dude was as fucked up or even more fucked up than any serial killer we have ever covered. I mean, you know, sometimes you just max out on evil as, as some of our serial killers have done. And this guy was right there with them. Dude truly gave zero fucks about any of the innocent human beings brought to him before Auschwitz. Thankfully, Mengele would not be recruited into Operation Paperclip. I don't think. Not everything has been declassified. So we can't know for sure. Sadly, uh, Mengele would for sure uh, not just survive the war, but thrive. He managed to escape imprisonment fled to South America, became a citizen of Paraguay in 1959, later moved to Brazil, where he met up with another former Nazi party member, Wolfgang Gerhard. In 1985, a multinational team of forensic experts traveled to Brazil in search of Mengele, and they determined that a man named Gerhard, you know, Wolfgang, uh, who had died of a st uh, stroke while swimming in 1979, was actually Joseph Mengele, who had stolen Gerhard's identity after his friend had died. 
The doctor would live to the age of 67, never once facing punishment for any of his crimes. Sometimes as painful as this reality is, the very worst of us just get away with it. Just never face justice, at least not in this world. Is it okay to pray for hell to be real? Is that a good use of prayer? Please, please God, please dear God, burn this motherfucker. Just burn this motherfucker alive forever and ever, amen. Uh, other Nazi doctors unable to escape, doctors who would be caught and face trial would claim that they had been acting out of necessity. They compared their victims to civilians who died from allied bombing campaigns, nothing more than collateral damage. We'll meet some of these dirtbags shortly, but first let's talk about what sort of research many of these Nazis were doing and why the U.S. wanted them so badly. For many in the U.S. government, facing a new showdown with the Soviet Union, winning the Cold War, and beating back communism would absolutely justify the means of using Nazi scientists who had committed uh, who had committed atrocities on par with what we've just covered. And an intense arms race was ramping up between the world's two biggest and growing superpowers. Both sides needed new weapons to win it, or at least uh, keep it to nothing more than a stalemate. And both knew that in Germany. There were some guys who knew an awful lot about, you know, weapons and uh, how they could be used to wipe their rivals off the face of the earth. Securing the minds who could create true weapons of mass destruction is what lay at the real core of Operation Paperclip. Weapons of mass destruction, or WMDs, include biological, chemical, nuclear, radiological weapons that can kill and bring significant harm to numerous humans or cause great damage to human-made structures, natural structures, or the biosphere. At the time of Operation Paperclip, these weapons were known as ABC weapons, atomic, biological, and chemical. And the Soviet Union and the U.S. were creating ABC weapons at breakneck speed during World War II and directly following it. What a cutesy name, by the way, for uh, powerful agents of death. Just ABC weapons. What are you boys working on? Not much, Ma. Just baking up some cupcakes, making some fruit punch, and cooking up a few ABC weapons. Uh, by the time of Operation Paperclip, the U.S.'s interest in ABC weapons was already a few decades old. After World War I, the U.S. went on a big chemical weapons binge, producing millions of barrels of mustard gas and lewisite. Lewisite's a pale, yellow, odorless compound that was used in World War I as a blister gas, which is just as nasty as it sounds. It would create chemical burns on the skin or in the lungs of its victims, giant, debilitating, pus-filled blisters, nasty shit. Thousands of U.S. troops were exposed to chemical agents like these in the 1940s in order to test the efficacy of gas masks and protective clothing. Roughly 60,000 black uh, and Hispanic troops were subjected to, without their understanding of what was going to happen to them, a mixture of mustard gas and lewisite during World War II in an experiment declassified in 1993. In 2015, one of these soldiers, uh, then 93-year-old African-American Rollins Edwards, who was serving at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines during the war, told an interviewer that officers led him and a dozen others into a wooden gas chamber and locked the door. Had no idea why they were headed there. Just ordered to like, come with me and get in that room. Just following orders. Then gas is pumped inside. And Edwards recalled, it felt like you were on fire. Guys started screaming and hollering and trying to break out. And then some of the guys fainted. Finally, they opened the door and let us out. And the guys were just, they were in bad shape. So that's an example of a sea weapon and an example of some fucked up shit that the U.S. government did to their own troops. Now let's look at some A and B weapons, then a few more C examples. Atomic or nuclear weapons release explosions of energy as a result of nuclear fission, nuclear fusion, or a combination of those two processes. Germany began its secret atomic program called uh, Urine. Oh boy. Uh, in English, it's Uranium Club. Why, why, I don't think I need to pronounce the German word. In April 1939, just months after German scientists Otto Hahn and Fritz Straussmann 
had inadvertently discovered fission. It's kind of like with Italian words. I did, I find that if I do kind of a character, I actually do pronounce them a little more, you know, uh, uh, properly. Uh, Fritz Straussmann. Maybe I'll go back to that. Joran Varin, Uranian Club. I don't know. Uh, did a significant head start over the American's Manhattan Project, but Germany never delved further than preliminary research into atomic weapons. And it's not that they didn't have uh, smart enough scientists. Hitler, oddly enough, just wasn't that into atomic weapons. He considered it to be an inferior science. It's almost like he, uh, you know, wasn't that smart or something. Almost like he was a guy whose uh, rage was at least partially based on getting denied, not once, but twice, from the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. Uh, the U.S., as I'm guessing many of you already know, took their atomic research a lot further than the Germans did. Notably, the U.S. used two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II, weapons that were developed uh, by the Manhattan Project, the subject of Suck 164. I'm not going to really delve into the carnage and ethics of those bombings because we've already done that at length in several previous episodes. So what are biological weapons? In a word, fun. Uh, most historians have described bi biological weapons as being a lot of fun. Uh, Dr. Otto van Schneider, history PhD from Phoenix Online, expert in experimental weapons, says, quote, when I think of fun, I think of frozen yogurt with crushed Oreos on top, playing fetch outside with a good dog on a beautiful sunny day, or biological weapons. Uh, Dr. Uh, Rosario Sanchez, doctoral level history professor at ITT Technical Institute says, when I'm looking to have fun on a day off, my go-to is curling up with a good book at my local coffee shop and then grabbing some paella at Casa Navarro. My next choice, probably fucking around with some biological weapons. And of course, that's made up tomfoolery. Uh, they're, not, they're not fun. They're not fun at all. Uh, biological weapons are microorganisms like viruses, bacteria, fungi, other toxins produced and released deliberately to cause disease and death in humans, animals, or plants. Uh, biological agents, agents like anthrax, botulinum, uh, toxin, and plague can pose a difficult public health challenge causing large numbers of deaths in a short amount of time that can be real difficult to contain, incredibly risky to use. You know, once you let that genie out of the box, you can't really control where it goes. After wiping out a huge percentage of your enemy's force, it can then come back and wipe out a huge percentage of your own population if you have not inoculated your population against it. So fucking stupid. We've done it. We spread our new skull fuck explosion plague to our enemy. We've developed a new, extra transmissible, far more deadly than ever strain of the bacteria. One that literally blows your fucking head off in 48 to 72 hours. It will make Europe's medieval black death look like a walk down the beach. Uh, but doctor, won't that disease in all likelihood, in today's increasingly connected world, make it across our borders and then kill most of us painfully as well? Ah, God, shit! Really wish you would have voiced that concern before we unleashed it. Cancel my lunch plans. We need to start working on a cure at once. Uh, officially, the U.S. started a biological weapons program in 1943. According to many researchers, from the end of World War II to the end of the Korean War, the U.S. government, along with the Soviet Union, made more than enough biological weapons to kill everyone on Earth. Sweet. So fun. Uh, good to know that uh, that's out there, you know, and that odds are something worse has probably been developed since that we don't even know about, won't know about for many years. Uh, by 1950, the principal U.S. bioweapons facility was located at Camp Dietrich in Maryland under the command of the Research and Engineering Division of the U.S. Army uh, Chemical Corps. Many former Nazis would wind up in Fort Dietrich at one point or another. Most of the research and development was done there while production and testing occurred at Pine Bluff, Arkansas and the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah. Pine Bluff Arsenal began production of weapons-grade agents by 1954. Uh, from 1952... Uh, uh, for, for many years onward, the Chemical Corps maintained a biological weapons research and development facility at Fort Terry on Plum Island, New York. The program continued until 1969. During most of that time, former Nazi scientists were driving the ship. Anthrax, 
typhus, plague, yellow fever, smallpox, you name it. They probably worked on it. They worked on an incredible variety of diseases that not only affected humans, but also plants and livestock, diseases that could uh, could create crop devastation, uh, water supply, contamination, and more. There's even speculation that the U.S. Biological Weapons Program worked on early coronaviruses. How scary is that? The first coronavirus was discovered back in 1965 when the U.S. program was possibly at its apex in the respiratory system of a boy in the U.K., found to cause symptoms akin to the common cold. And this is 100% pure speculation by me. Know that. But what a mindfuck it would be if it turned out that the U.S. released COVID-19 as a biological weapon and then it just fucking backfired or made it and then it accidentally got released. Like, literally no evidence. Uh, you know, to th- out there that I know of to think this is possible. I hate thinking that it's possible. It probably isn't because it's not that lethal. So it's not a great weapon, at least not a weapon of death. Uh, fatal, of course, for some, obviously, but not enough uh, to be a devastating weapon, but pretty good weapon for economic destruction. Certainly is that. I don't know. The U.S. Biological Warfare Program worked on so many different pathogens and they did that in secret for so long. Uh, I, I just can't think based on that history that it's impossible to conceive that they could have created, you know, some COVID-19 possibly. I don't know. Or, or maybe some other nation's lab did it, right? Ah, what a terrifying thing to think about. And again, no major group of scientists is coming out alleging that this happened. The international medical community does seem to think it was a naturally developed pathogen. I hope they're right, but ah, after everything I uh, am going to tell you today, I'm skeptical. 1969, President Richard Nixon ended all non-defensive aspects of the U.S. bioweapons program so that now they can only make weapons needed for defense, not offensive tactics. But as we'll see later, there's not a whole lot of oversight for what's considered offensive and what's considered defensive. Uh, the military and U.S. presidents have always maintained that their modus operandi, or operandi, operandi, fucking whatever, <laughs> that word is was to use operandi. There we go. Why was that so hard? Was to use bioweapons only as retaliation for the use of bioweapons against the U.S., never in attack. But we'll see later. Some countries dispute that. And I'm very open to believing their claims. Some pretty shady shit coming towards the end of this uh, episode. Now on, that the U.S. did. Now on to the last kind of weapons Operation Paperclip would make chemical, the C of ABC weapons. What are these horrific things? Chemical weapon is a uh, chemical used to cause intentional death or harm through its toxic properties. There are five different types of chemical agents, choking agents, blister agents, blood agents, nerve agents, and what are called riot control agents. Choking agents irritate the nose, throat, and respiratory tract when they're inhaled, making it difficult, if not impossible, to breathe. They are the agents favored by incubus. BDSM dom of pleasure through pain. Get down on your knees, slave, and prepare for sexual ascension. Put this phosgene rag over your mouth and inhale deeply. The moment you lose consciousness, incubus shall begin to reawaken you with heavy flogging and a two and quarter inch diameter, five inch long stainless steel military grade butt plug. The obedience lessons commence now, ready or not. Callback to a character from some previous episodes, if you're very confused right now. Uh, Incubus is not real, but choking agents are. And they are typically administered in gas form, causing uh, avali, air sacs in the lungs to secrete fluid, which means that those who inhale them essentially drown inside their own bodies. So that sounds fucking awful. Uh, Chemicals like chlorine have also been used as choking agents, as well as uh, chloropicin, diphosgene, phosgene, blister agents, you can probably guess, are not very pleasant either. Unfortunately, one of the most commonly used chemical weapons, we mentioned some earlier. These oily substances, after coming into contact with skin or being inhaled, affect the eyes, respiratory tract, and skin. Exposure to blister agents causes large and often life-threatening skin blisters that resemble severe burns. These blisters can result in blindness, 
and permanent damage to the respiratory system. And you can get blisters, to be clear, inside your body as well as outside. You can get them on your organs. So fun. Uh, not many people die from being exposed to blister agents, but they uh, they really fuck you up. They're really unpleasant, as you can imagine. Blister agents are dispersed through various liquids, aerosols, vapors, even dust. Some examples of blister agents are sulfur mustard, nitrogen mustard, leucite, and phosgene uh, oxime. They're also blood agents. Blood agents inhibit the ability of cells to use oxygen, effectively causing the body to suffocate. Blood agents, as you might guess from the name, are distributed through the blood, generally enter through inhalation. Uh, some examples of these agents include hydrogen cyanide, cyanide chloride, and arsine. Hydrogen cyanide ingested in high concentrations changes respiratory abilities in seconds. Loss of consciousness can occur within 30 seconds. Breathing can fully stop in under a minute. Even low concentrations can cause vertigo, nausea, headache, weak legs, convulsions that can lead to a coma. Once out of the coma, the affected may have permanent nervous system and brain damage. More, more fun stuff. Uh, riot control agents, sometimes referred to as tear gas, are generally non-lethal chemical compounds. They're not supposed to kill you, but every once in a while, someone does die. They are intended to uh, temporarily make people unable to function by causing irritation to the eyes, mouth, throat, lungs, and skin. 2020, seen a crazy uptick in usage in riot control agents in America. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that. Uh, riot control agents used by law enforcement officials for crowd control and sometimes by individuals in the general public for personal protection. Uh, for example, pepper spray, sometimes also used against law enforcement uh, recently. Uh, the effects of exposure to a riot control agent usually short-lived about 15 to 30 minutes after the person has been removed from the source and cleaned off. They can cause blindness, glaucoma, and they can cause, in extreme cases, respiratory failure. And we couldn't talk about chemical weapons without talking about nerve agents. Nazi scientists had a lot of experience with these, experience they would bring to the U.S. Nerve agents block an enzyme called, bear with me, it's a fucking one hell of a Scrabble word, acetylcholinesterase. Acetylcholinesterase. Ha ha ha. Feeling pretty good about myself in this second. Uh, in the nervous system. Acetylcholinesterase. God dang it. I tried to go through too fast. Acetylcholinesterase aids in the breaking down of a certain neurotransmitter. Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine. And without it, the neurotransmitter transmitter builds up between nerve cells and across synapses, leading to the hyperstimulation of muscles, glands, and other nerves. And after uh, being absorbed to the skin or inhaled, nerve agents work quickly and are highly toxic. Nerve agents can be dispersed via liquid, aerosol, vapor, dust. Main nerve agents uh, are the chemicals sarin, uh, somin, and tobin, uh, and also VX. These agents are known to be present in military stockpiles of several nations, including the U.S., you may have heard of VX in recent years. On February 13th, 2017, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's brother, Kim Jong-nam, was assassinated while in Malaysia at the Kuala Lumpur International Airport with some VX. Some assassins put some VX by his mouth and dude went down fucking fast. Uh, the VX molecule interferes with the way glands and muscles function by blocking an enzyme that allows them to relax. That causes muscles to clench uncontrollably and eventually prevents a victim from being able to breathe. Early symptoms can include pinprick pupils, runny nose, wheezing, muscle twitching. Death can occur anywhere from within a few minutes to a few hours, depending on the dose and method of contact. Arguably the worst of the chemical weapons, nerve agents, uh, were discovered in Nazi Germany and they were discovered accidentally. In 1936, Gerhard Schrader, a 33-year-old a German chemist at the IG Faben chemical conglomerate, had been tasked with developing new insecticides. The goal, mandated by Third Reich strategists, 
was to reduce Germany's reliance on food imported from abroad. And to do so, the country needed to prevent pests from depleting its own food supply. Schrader created a compound called Preparation 991 that was so deadly, uh, IG Faben alerted the German military to it. When some other German scientists first studied it, they were so impressed by, by its toxicity, they named it Tauben, a riff on the German word for taboo. Existing chemical weapons such as mustard gas and phosgene took hours to days to kill their victims, but Tauben could kill in just 20 minutes. So the army gave Schrader and a colleague a 50,000 uh, mark reward, about $20,000 at the time for the discovery. And then Hitler and other top, top Nazi leaders gathered in a circle and watched each other beat off until they were all finished in a private celebration, as was customary at the time. Uh, you know, the Nazis figured out, you know, uh, and every time the Nazis figured out, you know, like a more efficient and or more painful way to kill someone, you know, they had a little celebratory circle jerk, uh, JK. Uh, maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. Soon, German military researchers began weaponizing Tobin, finding ways to insert it into projectiles that could be safely stored without leaking other scientists tested the compound on animals, developed processes to manufacture the poison, researched antidotes, tried building analogs, a.k.a. compounds with similar molecular structures, in other words, other nerve agents. In 1938, Schrader himself synthesized a new nerve agent that was twice as toxic as Tobin. He wanted another $50,000 marks. He wanted to kick off a new Nazi circle jerk and get invited this time into that inner special circle. Uh, he tested its efficacy on monkeys, and thought to be, uh, you know, thought to be a good predictor of how the stuff would affect humans. By June 1939, Schrader was in talks with the Spandau Citadel and military chemists about this new compound, which they called Substance 146. The military chemists began developing new methods for producing it and studying its physiological effects. And this poison was named Sarin, Tobin's shittier cousin, an acronym built from the last names of the scientists who had spearheaded its development. Now they needed to find out how to best deliver their horrific creation. By the spring of 1943, a few, few years into the war, the first large-scale nerve agent factory was built in Poland and produced 350 metric tons of Tobin per month. Not as deadly as its new cousin, but less volatile, easier to produce. By the end of the war, the factory had produced 12,000 metric tons of Tobin, which they loaded into aerial bombs and artillery, she artillery shells. And uh, the factory where it was made, uh, Dienfurth, was also notably a forced labor factory. No one was working with this substance hands-on because they wanted to. And over the course of the war, hundreds of inmates died of toxic exposure, overwork, disease, and malnutrition. The workers, according to nearby residents, looked like walking corpses, like people in Gilead's The Colonies, or other handmaid's, handmaid's Tale fans. Uh, despite all the effort expanded on Tobin, by the war's midpoint, it was becoming increasingly clear to military researchers that sarin was the better chemical weapon. Sarin, while more challenging to manufacture, also made, so to speak, the Führer's hate dick harder. So in 1943, the German military approved construction of an entirely new sarin factory at Falkenhagen. Falkenhagen! Get to Falkenhagen! Make it a sarin! Uh, a site just over 43 miles outside of Berlin. The same year, the German Army Ordnance Office recruited Richard Kuhn to study nerve gas. Kuhn was an extraordinary chemist. He'd won the 1938 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his efforts to understand the structure and function of vitamin B and carotene compounds. Also, really into being a Nazi. And he switched over from working on shit to help you live longer, like B vitamins, to shit that made you die a lot quicker, like nerve agents. What a career shift. It's like switching over from being a trauma surgeon to an executioner. Uh, Kuhn and his colleagues were tasked with, dis with determining how nerve agents cause damage. They discovered that the nerve agents blocked the breaking down of acetyl acetylcholine, 
the neurotransmitter that we talked about earlier, uh, which is released into the synapses that connect nerve cells to other nerve cells or muscle cells during electrical signaling. They found that when this enzyme uh, that breaks down acetylcholine is blocked, nerve cells in the brain and muscles are stuck in an overstimulated state. Uh, this would make people excessively sweat and salivate, vomit, have seizures, and asphyxiate. As part of their research, Kuhn and colleagues synthesized a brand new nerve agent, uh, Salmon, twice as strong as Sarin. Uh, upon this discovery, the following Nazi celebratory circle jerk was rumored to have been so intense that three of the Nazis in that special inner circle ended up in the hospital with broken shafts, and one of them had to have their butthole amputated. You heard me. His butthole was amputated. Gosh, dang. How is that even possible? It's hard to wrap one's head around. No explanation given in the sources. I just made up my head for that. Uh, Hitler would never end up using his stockpile of Bs and Cs much, though. He thought his, with his success, with his Blitzkrieg attacks, uh, followed by an invasion of ground troops, that would be more than enough to be successful in conquering what he wanted to conquer. And uh, it's thought he was worried about retaliation. If he unleashed, you know, WMDs, ABCs on allied forces, he, he was certain they would respond in kind. And, and also Hitler himself may have been subjected to mustard gas while fighting in World War I. And it's believed uh, by some that he just didn't want to risk subjugating his own troops to something similar. Also random fact, Hitler was awarded the Iron Cross, first class medal for his service in World War I, an award normally given for bravery in battle. He was so proud of that medal. He had it on him when he killed himself. And who recommended that he receive that medal? Hugo Gutmann, a German Jewish lieutenant, right? The, the medal, the award he was most proud of was awarded to him uh, after, be, have, have, after he was recommended to receive that medal by a Jewish, uh, Jewish German lieutenant. Man, what a motherfucker. Uh, luckily, Hugo was able to successfully free from the nation he once defended in 1939 with his family, made it to San Diego where he worked as a typewriter salesman until his death in 1962. Uh, for their part, the Allies initially had no idea that the German military discovered and was stockpiling a suite of such extraordinarily toxic chemical weapons, even though someone had actually literally told them. Uh, in May 1943, after Germany lost a six-month battle in Tunisia, Allied forces took some 230,000 Axis soldiers prisoner. Among these prisoners of war was a German who informed his British interrogators that he was a chemist who had worked at a secret chemical weapons institute, the aforementioned uh, Spandau Citadel in Berlin, on a new poison with astounding properties. His descriptions of the colorless, nearly odorless chemical that could kill victims in just 20 minutes or less sounded too good to be true. British intelligence officers back in England did not believe his story, and the 10-page report filed by the interrogators was completely ignored. Then after the war, I'm guessing some dudes got their asses chewed. You knew about the Tobin three bloody years ago. We thought they were joking, sir. And what else did you think they were joking about? Four other nerve agents, 22 biological weapons, the location of Hitler's bunker, papers that contain the Nazis' entire strategy for war on the Western Front, and the Holocaust in general, sir. How in the Queen's name did you get your bloody jobs? We're the Queen's third cousins, twice removed, sir. Ah, yes, that, that makes sense. Uh, after the Nazi party fell, or as the Nazi party fell, they continued to move and, hire their, or, and hide their stockpile. They also executed prisoners who had worked in the factories to make sure they didn't notify the Allies. The Allies would finally get wind of what was going on when American soldiers encountered a barge traveling down the Danube River in Bavaria. They began to fire at it, and then to the American surprise, after just a few rounds of fire, the Germans on board waved surrender flags and then admitted that the cargo, uh, tabin-filled bombs, could have killed them all. Whoops. Uh, when Allied scientists discovered this potent unknown nerve agent that was much more toxic th than anything they had in their own weapons inventory, they scrambled to get their hands on these weapons and the men who made these weapons. 
Operation Paperclip type dealings long before it had officially begun. Soon the Americans and British pooled resources and began searching for and rounding up scientists involved in chemical weapons research. Uh, when they later arrested Schrader at his home after the war was over, the German chemist who had begun creating these chemical weapons, uh, he immediately handed over chemical formulas and other details about nerve agents. Bringing down Nazi Germany now had a whole other dimension to it, appropriating its knowledge, its knowledge of weapons. So it would be in quote unquote good hands. They'd soon learn it had also, uh, you know, fell, excuse me, fallen into hands they considered bad. Uh, American British intelligence discovered that Russians had rebuilt uh, Dianfurth's, Taubin, and Sarin plants in Soviet territory. A chemical arms race now is underway. It's now about who could get their hands on the best research, the best minds, no matter what atrocities these minds had taken part in. So what are the ethics of all this? There is an argument for the U.S. to recruit these scientists, but should they have then imprisoned them instead of pardoned and worked with them? Should they maybe have allowed them to work for the U.S. war effort as part of some type of prisoner release program? Maybe they could have agreed to financially take care of their immediate families thanks to their contributions to the U.S. war effort, but then not have guaranteed their freedom? Would it have been ethical to use their knowledge for allied weapons manufacturing and then put them in prison following the war? Or should they have been recruited so that they didn't fall into Russian hands, but then immediately put on trial for war crimes in the U.S. and executed if found guilty? Where is the line? If Dr. Mengele was the one man on earth who could give the U.S. the winning edge in the Cold War, would it have been justified to pardon him? Right? Can you overlook torturing 3,000 children to death if you think you can save millions from dying in a potential World War III? Think past initial, fuck that guy, gut response on that one. I mean, what truly is the right answer there? Uh, let's meet some Nazis now who were recruited, not hypothetically, into Operation Paperclip after it kicked off in July 20th, 1945. While Russia would get hands, uh, get their, you know, get thousands, get their hands on thousands of former Nazi sciencey folks, as we mentioned, the U.S. got 1,600 of the very best or the very worst German minds, depending on how you look at it. And we'll start with Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun arguably... Operation Paperclip's brightest star. Someone we covered in uh, Suck 164, the Manhattan Project. Von Braun was a physics and engineering genius. Incredibly charismatic. Many of those who knew him thought he was a visionary. When NASA was created, he joined it as director of the Marshall Space Flight Center, was put in charge of the Saturn V rockets that sent Apollo program spacecraft to the moon. Given the nickname, the father of Americans' space program. In recognition of his services, he was later awarded the National Medal of Science in 1975. Sounds like a hero, right? But can a hero also be a war criminal? During World War II, von Braun was an SS Sturbenführer, uh, equivalent to an army major who developed and oversaw the manufacture of V-2 rockets, the world's first ballistic missiles. His rockets, carrying one-ton explosive warheads, rained down fucking terror and claimed the lives of thousands of uh, the overwhelming majority of them civilians in London, Antwerp, and other cities. However, if Von Braun is a war criminal for doing that, how many World War II US, U.S. officers and politicians are then also war criminals for the civilian bombing uh, uh, you know, of Nagasaki and Hiroshima for dropping those atomic bombs on those civilians? Hard to throw that particular stone as an American. There are also the death of thousands of slave laborers who perished while toiling on his rockets in atrocious conditions, conditions he definitely knew about to consider when thinking about if he's a hero or a war criminal monster or both, uh, conditions there are no records of him ever objecting to. An estimated 20,000 slave workers, most of them Jewish, toiled away to build von Braun's rockets until they died of starvation, maltreatment, or were just straight up murdered by their sadistic guards while building his rockets. Von Braun was often at the factories while this was happening, definitely had firsthand knowledge of horrific workplace conditions. 
After the war, he would claim to be an oblivious scientist, too engrossed in his blueprints, you know, and calculations to fully comprehend the horrors of what was going on around him, to fully comprehend the horrors of the regime he served. That's, come on, it's fucking nonsense. That's bullshit. Doesn't pass the sniff test. You don't show up at that factory every day and just, you know, not notice thousands of scared and emaciated Jewish prisoners being screamed at by Nazi guards, being sometimes beaten, publicly executed by these guards, you know, just think something like, what a, what a strange and unorthodox management style. Those guys must have really pissed off their boss to get shot like that. Weird. Well, not my department. I'm sure there's a perfectly ethical and reasonable explanation for it all. Back to work. Or just like not even literally notice at all. Oh, these blueprints, just people, you know, getting fucking hanged, you know, around you getting shot by Nazi guards. You're like, oh, God, just got to figure out these equations. It's so engrossed. I, just, I don't even notice what's happening right over to the, the right. Even if he had known about it, Von Braun said there wasn't anything he could have done about it. Eh, not entirely true, right? Might not have been able to stand up to uh, Nazis uh, to stop them for sure. Uh, without being hurt or killed. Uh, but he could have removed himself from association with it all. He could have tried to escape, suffered whatever consequences came his way had he been caught. Not saying that would have been easy. It would have been fucking horrible. Would have in all likelihood just ended with, you know, his death and his and the death of his family. Uh, Von Braun would spend the rest of his post-World War II life putting distance between him and the war crimes he participated in. After the war, he was one of the first Germans secretly moved to the U.S. for Operation Paperclip. He was put to work by the U.S. Army to develop its intermediate-range ballistic missile program. He also developed the rocket that launched America's first space satellite and, as we've said, went on to have an uh, illustrious career in space exploration. Werner was not the only member of the Von Braun Bunch, the Von Braun tribe, to be recruited by Operation Paperclip. Uh, Werner's brother, Magnus Von Braun, also recruited by the U.S. military. Magnus, very interesting character we have not talked about really much before on Time Suck. Uh, he was Hitler's favorite professional wrestler in Germany uh, during the war and before the war, super famous at the time, massive dude, six foot three, 265 pounds of solid muscle, back when that was not even remotely common for a professional athlete. Most of his wrestling opponents were 50 plus pounds lighter than him, not even as close to as muscular as the man who wrestled under the moniker of the Bavarian Werwolf. Uh, he was also based on pictures, very hairy, probably led to that uh, moniker. Uh, why would a wrestler be recruited into Operation Paperclip because this wrestler was also a chemist who knew a lot about anabolic steroids. Of course he did. He didn't invent them, but he did invent a way to, you know, very efficiently synthesize them and inject them into the human bloodstream. And the U.S. military thought that they could use his knowledge of anabolic steroids to create a new class of super soldiers. The Marvel character of the Hulk, who showed up in 1962, based largely on Magnus von Braun. Magnus famously once wrestled an actual Razorback gorilla in a private cage match with only Hitler, uh, Himmler, and a few other high-ranking Nazis as witnesses. Let's get ready to rumble in the cage today. We have the Bavarian werewolf. 265 pounds of really racist muscle. Today, he's hoping to treat this girl like an innocent Jewish fellow citizen who's never done anything to him or his family and just happened to be born into a different culture and religion. And in the other corner, we have a very confused Razorback gorilla. Robbed from the jungles of Africa, doesn't understand why a roared out Nazi is tearing him down like he owes the man money, even though he's not intellectually capable of understanding the concept of currency. Let's get it on. Magnus was not a wrestler. Uh, he didn't know anything about anabolic steroids, to my knowledge. Uh, it doesn't appear that Nazi Germany had any sort of professional wrestling league either. Not like what we're used to in America, at least. I, uh, I just hope that, you know, a few of you would believe that nonsense all the way through the announcer voice. Who was Magnus really? <laughs> I wish he was a wrestler. I wish he was what I just described. No, he was a chemist and engineer who, uh, for a time, also worked on the V2 program in Nazi Germany alongside his brother, Werner. And it was Magnus who made sure that once it was clear Germany would lose World War II, V2 rockets would be turned over to the Americans, not the Russians. 
The B-2 team was on the run in May of 1945 when Magnus encountered a young American private, Fred Schneikert. A German speaker, Fred yelled in German, stop, come forward and keep your hands up. And Magnus replied in broken English, my name is Magnus von Braun. My brother invented the V2. We want to surrender. Schneikert reportedly told Magnus, I think you're nuts. But he did get his superiors to investigate his claims. Good thing he didn't hand it over to British intelligence. Sounds like bullocks again. Foul it with the Tabin guy's claims and all the other lies. Ignore it. Uh, fortunately, U.S. intelligence believed the story. The same afternoon, Magnus returned to tell some of his fellow scientists that he had made arrangements with the Americans. And six months later, the Von Braun brothers were on their way to the U.S. aboard the SS Argentina, along with several other key members of the V2 team. Along with his colleagues, he took up residency in a former hospital at Fort Bliss, shared uh, knowledge with the Americans, along with technical documents and blueprints. Magnus went on to have a very long and successful career with the Chrysler Motor Company, ironically working out of London later in his career, a city he had helped bomb before he retired to the Arizona desert in 1975. How fucked is that? That's literally like one of the guys who built the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima, then taking a job at some company in Hiroshima a few years later. Uh, so what did you do during the war? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I, hey, check, hey, check out that squirrel. Ah, what a cool squirrel. Yeah, I gotta get back to work. Nice talk. Uh, Magnus would die in 2003 in Phoenix at the age of 84. He was buried in his Bavarian werewolf outfit and, uh, and his championship belt. Ah, come on. Uh, now let's meet some uh, even more controversial Operation Paperclip figures. Some of the doctors who, similar to Mengele, had performed experiments on human beings. Horrible experiments. Uh, Dr. Walter Schreiber, Dr. Walter Schreiber, one of those two uh, Walters with almost identical names, was a prominent epidemiologist and well why can I Why can I say, uh, I can say epidemiologist just fine. And then like a word that shouldn't be as hard as that. I'm like, can't talk about it. Uh, this guy was a well-regarded biology professor as well before he became a Nazi scientist. Schreiber was a medical student uh, when World War I erupted in 1914, at which point he voluntarily enlisted in the German army. He was wounded early in the conflict. After his recovery, he resumed his studies, then served as a military doctor until the war ended. After the war, he became a professor of biology and hygiene, became one of the world's foremost ep experts on epidemics. Just prior to World War II, he rose to the rank of major general in the Wehrmacht Medical Service. He was also a member of the Reich Research Council, uh, where he conducted cruel and sadistic medical experiments on prisoners. Uh, Schreiber introduced the use of lethal phenol injections as a quick and convenient means of executing troublemakers. It's his, his quote. He conducted experiments on prisoners in Auschwitz by freezing them in order to examine the effects of extreme cold. At the uh, Ravenbrück uh, women's concentration camp just outside Berlin, he conducted experiments on female prisoners by cutting open their legs, deliberately infecting them with gangrene, then giving uh, these previously healthy women unnecessary bone transplants. Fuck. And of course, no painkillers for any of this. Uh, the subjects of experiments usually suffered slow and incredibly agonizing deaths. At the end of the war, he was captured by the Red Army, taken to the USSR, where he was imprisoned. Unfortunately, he was not tortured mercilessly there. His captor soon discovered his true identity, and the Soviets then put him to work providing medical care to high-ranking German prisoners. In 1948, he evaded his handlers, escaped, made it back to Germany, where he was then hired by the U.S. military and the CIA to work as a chief medical doctor in Camp King, a clandestine POW interrogation site in Germany. Uh, Operation Paperclip would snap him up in 1951. 
He began to work at the uh, Air Force School of Medicine in Texas, uh, but some American journalists found out what a monster this motherfucker was, and the subsequent publication of newspaper articles soon thereafter about his medical atrocities, uh, you know, under Hitler's Germany, led to public outcry, as it should have. His intelligence handlers then relocated him and his family to Argentina in 1952, where he worked as an epidemiologist in a research laboratory, most likely still working on biological weapons for the U.S. government until his death from a heart attack in 1970. Another medical monster who got a new uh, life thanks to Operation Paperclip was Dr. Herbert Brunner Gerstner. Uh, Dr. Herbert Brunner Gerstner, uh, brought to the U.S. in 1949. In the 1930s, Gerstner was, worked for the University of Leipzig. He started off by interning as a research assistant for Dr. U, uh, Eugene Gildemeister, uh, a leading researcher in the field of electromagnetism. Electromagnetism, there we go. <laughs> uh, and how electricity affected the human body. Regular Dr. Frankenstein. Gerstner also got involved with a psychiatrist named Ponce, who developed an extreme electroshock therapy that a U.S. government report described as pure, unadulterated sadism. Uh, this Walter studied under some of the Third Reich's finest sadists. Then he joined Action T4, a program Hitler started in October of 1939, which empowered his personal physician, Dr. Karl Brandt, and Chancellery Chief uh, Philip Buhler to kill those deemed unsuitable for life. The two were charged with responsibility for expanding the authority of physicians so that patients considered incurable, according to the best available human judgment of their state of health, can be granted a mercy killing. Yeah, right. Mercy killing. These are people who did not fucking want to die. Uh, Gerstner worked on this program, which claimed the lives of tens of thousands of those deemed unfit to live because of incurable illnesses, both physical and mental. The T4 program, which swept through German hospitals for chronically ill patients looking for people to put to death, was a precursor and segue to the Holocaust, and many of its techniques and operating procedures would be used a few years later on a grander scale against European or against Europe's uh, Jewish population. Uh, Viktor Frankl, you know, from our recent inspirational suck, would intentionally misdiagnose his patients when the Nazis came to Vienna to save them from this very program. And Gerstner and his mentor, uh, Gildemeister, didn't just murder T4 program selections. They went the extra mile in horrificness and subjected them to sadistic deaths before euthanizing them. The duo conducted cruel experiments on hundreds of human test subjects, uh, subjecting them to electric shocks and burns in order to examine their wounds. Many of their victims were selected from, quote, feeble-minded children who have been slated for euthanasia. These motherfuckers burning handicapped children alive just to see, you know, what the fuck would happen. Uh, you know, and if they didn't die from the burns, they just wanted to see how they'd heal. And then if the, you know, burns didn't actually kill them and they did heal, well, then they would execute them. Gerstner was selected for Operation Paperclip despite openly admitting to U.S. officials that he had done this shit. It was actually sort of a bonus to U.S. officials who wanted to know how electrocution and radiation would affect the human body uh, how burns would affect the human body in case, you know, the Soviet Union deployed arms against them to these effects. Operation Paperclip ended up using this motherfucker to treat U.S. cancer patients in San Antonio with radiation, with the primary aim not being to cure his cancer patients, but rather just to gather information about what radiation did to the body. 263 cancer patients were experimented upon with full body irradiation, uh, which subjected them to extremely high doses of x-rays that would eventually kill them. According to U.S. naturalization records, this monster became a U.S. citizen in Laredo, Texas on August 8th, 1952, along with his wife, Helga. I picture him just wearing a, you know, cowboy hat. Ah, Laredo, Texas. Just some Nazi down there. I, I like it very much here. Someone's <laughs> going on the horse and go for some riding. Not think about the burning of the children and such. Just having some fun with the lasso and things. Uh, and then according to Helga's obituary when she died, he came to Oak Ridge, 
worked uh, with the Oak Ridge Institute for Nuclear Studies in Tennessee, died in 1984 at the age of 73. His wife also worked at Oak Ridge until 1987. And then following her retirement, she remarried and spent her time playing golf at the country club, uh, tennis and bridge with her country club friends until she died in 2014. Fun. There's a couple of Nazis living the good life in Tennessee. Helga playing bridge and golf, maybe playing with the relatives of people her husband once tortured and killed. That's interesting to think about. Uh, now for another monstrous human experimenter, uh, Friedrich Fritz Hoffmann. Dr. Fritz Hoffmann was a German scientist and chemist who worked at the Luftwaffe's Technical Research Institute from the 1930s until the end of World War II. As part of his research, he conducted experiments with poison on human subjects selected from concentration camps. Uh, Hoffmann was based in Frankfurt in Berlin, conducted many of his experiments in Dachau, in that concentration camp in Upper Bavaria. He was saved from accountability after the war when he was selected for Operation Paperclip and sent to the U.S. A large and gregarious man who spoke English pretty well, Hoffman claimed after the war that he had been opposed to Nazi ideology, but there is no evidence to support this claim. Uh, during uh, the Dachau trials after the war, he testified about his involvement in the murders of 324 Czechoslovakian Catholic priests who were deliberately infected with malaria to examine its effects. And he escaped punishment because, well, initially, Britain, uh, Britain wanted his brain. Hoffman ended up in Britain as part of Operation Matchbox, the British counterpart to the U.S.'s Operation Paperclip, and a precursor to Operation Matchbox 20, an attempt by the U.S. government to create the best alt-pop musicians of the late 90s. And it was arguably very successful. That's right, Rob Thomas, built by secret Nazi doctors. You heard it here first. Uh, of course, J.K. As part of Operation Matchbox, not Matchbox 20, uh, Hoffman worked on developing synthetic poison gases. However, Hoffman didn't get along with his British colleagues, and the British passed him off to the Americans, and in 1947, Operation Paperclip swept him up, and he went to work for the U.S. Army in Fort Detrick and the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. His research included furthering the development of the nerve agent Sauron and psychoactive agents like LSD. Hello, Project MKUltra! Uh, some of the Operation Paperclip, former Nazis absolutely worked on that CIA mind control program. Check out that suck from August of 2017 for more info on the not-so-secret-anymore program. Hoffman's test subjects in the U.S. were mainly enlisted military personnel and federal prison inmates who were not told they were give, being given toxins. In the 1950s, Hoffman would go on to develop a variety of chemical agents for the U.S. government, such as Agent Blue, Agent White, Agent Orange, uh, Agent Orange, a herbicide, used to defoliate vegetation, its widespread use during the Vietnam War, would have incredibly adverse health effects on soldiers and civilians from both sides of that conflict. More on the deadly effects in today's timeline. Uh, starting in 1952, Hoffman also began working side gigs for the CIA. He worked on oxygen deprivation experiments, very similar to the ones conducted by the Nazis in concentration camps. That's fun, just doing that for the, for the U.S. He later joined the staff of a CIA front organization called Camropel uh, Associates and worked on developing the chemicals used in the CIA's various attempts to assassinate Cuba's Fidel Castro. He did all kinds of shady shit for both Germany and the U.S. and then died in 1967. Uh, another paperclip recruit, Walter Scheibe, not to be confused with Walter Scheibe, uh, a critical player in the Third Reich's wartime production. His pre-war experience in chemistry and textile manufacturing made him immensely useful to the National Socialist Party. And when World War II broke out, he joined the Reich Ministry of Armaments and War Production he held a variety of high-level positions. These were big-time fucking dudes recruiting. Uh, he was also a member of the SS, rose to the rank of SS Abrigadefjöra, equivalent to a one-star brigadier general in the U.S. Army. He was awarded the War Merit Cross by Hitler in 1943. 
Uh, he was also performing bizarre and cruel experiments on prisoners for Hitler. And one of these experiments, which took place at the Mauthausen concentration camp in 1943, Shiver wanted to find out about the impact of food shortage on slave laborers. This shit is fucking absurd. He picked 150 slave laborers, and instead of giving them actual uh, food, instead of giving them the usual diet of watery broth, which was in and of itself shitty, uh, he gave them something far shittier. Scheiber gave them an artificial paste, soup-like substance made out of used clothing. Jesus Christ. These guys are working their asses off, some, somewhat literally, uh, unfortunately, and this guy feeds them old t-shirt soup just to see what the fuck would happen. What did they think would happen? Unsurprisingly, the experiment concluded that people can't survive if you feed them scraps of clothes instead of actual fucking food. You can't live on t-shirt soup. Of the 150 subjects, 116 died before the experiment ended. I'm guessing odds are the rest didn't survive the war. Who came up with that one? Himmler. Yes, Führer. Get, get, get some of the Walters in here. Which one? It does not matter. Uh, yes, Führer. Uh, Walter... Uh, I'm, I'm feeling well, I'm feeling kind of bored today and I want you to lift my spirits. So I was thinking, what if you took, say, 150 factory workers and fed them some t-shirt soup? Uh, a t-shirt soup, Fiora? Yes, t-shirt soup, you endable, endable, imbecile. I'm so flustered, I cannot say the word imbecile. Why do you look at me like I'm crazy? I want you to feed them the t-shirt soup and then report back to me. It's a perfectly reasonable request. Bring me a bowl of it as well. I've always wanted to taste just a tiny bit of t-shirt soup. I'm curious. It will amuse me, you motherfucker. Get a fucking t-shirt soup made. Of course, we're, we're lucky to have you as our vice leader. I'm so sorry. Shit's insane. Uh, Scheiber was also the armaments ministry's official liaison with IG Fabin, the chemical conglomerate that produced the poisonous toxins used in the Holocaust, where uh, all those developments in nerve gas have been created. He oversaw the chemical giant's production of Tobin and sarin gases, working closely with the company's chief chemist, Otto Ambrose. Uh, while working on IG Fabin, or working you know, with them, Schieber was linked to thousands of deaths from numerous chemical experiments on live subjects. After the war, Schieber became friends with a U.S. Army Brigadier General in the Chemical Corps named Charles Locks. Charles Locks uh, stationed in Heidelberg, where he worked on nerve agents, including sarin and Tobin. Uh, because Schieber had intimate knowledge of the gases used by the Nazis during the war, the two hit it off. Maybe they hit it off too much. Uh, Lauk soon called back to the Pentagon where he was reprimanded by his superiors for getting too chummy with the Nazis. That's weird the way it's all written. Interesting. Lauk, what are you thinking? We want you to work closely with these guys, get all their secrets, make sure they're productive. Have, you know, maybe a drink with them sometimes. Sometimes tell them an okay joke. Get a polite laugh. But do not be playing drinking games until three in the morning and telling your best jokes and getting belly laughs and taking them out to a goddamn Yankees game. Jesus Christ, man, in case you forgot, these guys are fucking Nazis. Uh, it's a weird line to draw. Uh, as a 1947 official memo stated, Dr. Scheiber's talents are of, are of so important a nature to the U.S. that they go far to override any consideration of his political background. That's an interesting thing to uh, write. Right, that they go far to override any consideration of his political background. So, yeah, whatever the fuck this guy did, we don't care. He's, he has some important knowledge. Uh, Shriver worked there for 10 years. He was instrumental in helping the U.S. develop its own sarin gas capability. In addition to his work for the Army's Chemical Corps, Shriver became a CIA assistant, or uh, sorry, CIA assistant, CIA asset for the remainder of his life. Uh, he lived at the age of 63, spent his final years working for the U.S. from West Germany after leaving the country when investigative journalists discovered, you know, what he'd done for Nazi Germany and were, uh, you know, not real, not real happy about it and exposed him. Now let's meet yet another cruel experimenter. We're almost at the timeline. Uh, Dr. Hubertus Strug Strughold, 
was a prominent German medical researcher who served as the Luftwaffe's chief aeromedical researcher from 1935 until the end of World War II. He was a bigwig, another bigwig. Uh, during the war, he conducted some horrific human experiments on prisoners, got many of his test subjects killed. Uh, those activities were swept under the rug, however, and he was, of course, brought to the U.S. under the protection, again, of Operation Paperclip. Uh, after earning a medical degree in the 20s, Strughold, uh, Strughold excuse me, got into the emerging field of aviation medicine. He won a Rockefeller Foundation scholarship or fellowship and traveled to the U.S. in 1928, where he conducted aviation medicine research at the University of Chicago and at Case Western University in Cleveland. Uh, back in Germany, he became a professor. And then in 1935, when he was hired, uh, he was hired by the Nazis as director of the Research Institution for Aviation Medicine, which was sponsored by Hermann Göring's Ministry of Aviation. Uh, Strughold's institution conducted pioneering research on the physical effects of supersonic flight and high altitudes. When the war broke out in 1939, the institution was absorbed into the Luftwaffe. And during the war, Strughold was part of medical studies that used inmates from the Dachau concentration camp. Test subjects were, again, forced to endure surgeries without anesthetics. They were immersed in frozen water to examine the effects of hypothermia. Uh, they were placed in air pressure chambers to test the human body's ability to withstand or not withstand various levels of air pressure. Very cruel way to die. And not that many years before, you know, he was studying at the University of Chicago in Case Western. Probably grabbing some drinks with some American friends, maybe cheering for the Cubs or the White Sox or the Cleveland Indians, eating a hot dog, admiring a home run. Then over in Germany... Not that long afterwards, you know, freezing, scared Jewish concentration camp victims to death. How very disturbing. After the war, investigators at the Nuremberg War Trials listed Strughold as one of 13 persons, firms, or individuals implicated in the Dachau medical, medical atrocities. And because the U.S. government figured he possessed valuable information and ex experience, he was never charged with war crimes. Instead, he's brought to America where Strughold held high-ranking medical positions in the Air Force uh, as head of its School of Aviation Medicine in Texas at one point. He then went to work for NASA as head of the Department of Space Medicine. Strughold conducted pioneering work in the physical and psychological effects of manned spaceflight, and his efforts helped get American astronauts to successfully walk on the moon. Because of his contributions to the field, he became known as the father of space medicine. Space medicine partially evolved out of concentration camp torture. And since 1963, the Space Medicine Association has given out an annual uh, Hubertus Strughold Award to top physicians or scientists for outstanding work in space medicine. Strughold denied participation or even knowledge of the Dachau human experimentation. And for years before, <coughs> excuse me, before classified information was released, most physicians and scientists in his field took him at his word. Uh, he was also beloved by his colleagues and students, many of whom found it hard to believe that Strughold had lied about his involvement in Nazi human experimentation, but he did lie. Strughold's expertise in keeping people alive in space was derived at least partially from his intimate knowledge of just how much the human body can endure under extreme stress in those concentration camp experiments. And many other Nazis who conducted horrific experiments on prisoners during World War II were also recruited into Operation Paperclip. Let's get back to the rocket men for just a second here. Dieter Grau did not only develop rockets, he developed tortures, punishments for those deemed traitors as well. As a member of the Von Braun rocket group, Dieter Grau was a central part in the development of the V-2 rocket during World War II. During his time as a Nazi asset, uh, Grau was briefly posted in Mittelwerk, an underground slave labor rocket factory run by Arthur Rudolph, another Nazi who would also be recruited into Operation Paperclip. And at Mittelwerk, uh, Grau developed his expertise in debugging or in the detection of worker sabotage. The slaves that he outed at Mittelwerk were subjected to a special punishment reserved for saboteurs public hanging in the factory's main hall by a crane that was raised very slowly while other horrified laborers looked on. 
So your neck wasn't broken. You just slowly choked to death as you were uh, hanged. After he was snapped up by Operation Paperclip, Grau served as a quality director on a number of rocket projects, including the development of the Saturn V rocket. Uh, and did the man who slowly hanged prisoners only in prison because of their heritage receive karmic retribution and die a slow and painful death at a young age? No. Grau lived a long time. To the ripe old age of 101 and was fondly remembered by his American colleagues for his attention to detail and everything he did. How sweet. What a nice detailed man. Wonder if his colleagues knew he paid great attention to the details of dramatically executed innocent Jewish, you know, slave laborers forced to work in that prison camp. Uh, just a few quick hits now, and then we'll, they'll be on to the timeline. Uh, Walter, another Walter, uh, Robert Dornberger uh, was a, a German artillery officer and World War II major general who was in charge of the manufacture and deployment of the Nazis' V-2 rockets. Like many other Operation Paperclip dirtbags, uh, like at least two other Walters, he used slave labor in his projects. Tens of thousands of slaves worked to death, perished of maltreatment, were straight up executed in Dornberger's hellish factories and work sites. He became chief of the U.S. Army's weapons department, was put in charge of America's V-2 missile development program, and later on had a hand in creating the space shuttle. Upon retirement, he lived in Mexico and returned to Germany where he died in 1980 at the age of 84. So many of these motherfuckers lived so long. Clearly, they dealt well with any guilt they may have felt over doing the horrible shit they did. Uh, Nazi scientist uh, Hermann or Hermann Oberth first posited the idea that rockets could operate in the vacuum of space. He developed a German V-2 rocket alongside Werner von Braun, working just like him in that big Nazi factory built via slave labor. And he joined von Braun in America with many others to develop a Saturn V rocket. Uh, one final Nazi rocket man, Kurt Debus, next to Werner von Braun, Kurt Debus, the most famous former Nazi to occupy a place in American rocketry's Hall of Fame. Debus was the director of the John F. Kennedy Space Center in Florida from 1962 to 1974. Uh, back in Nazi Germany, uh, Debus was Hitler's uh, flight test director during the development of the V-2 rocket. Debus was part of the group led by Magnus von Braun that negotiated, you know, the Bavarian werewolf uh, that negotiated the surrender of the German rocket scientists at the end of the war. Almost immediately, Debus was shuttled away to begin work at Fort Bliss, soon transferred to Huntsville, Alabama to oversee the construction of the NASA facilities at Cape Canaveral. With Debus at the helm, uh, NASA successfully launched 13 Saturn V rockets into space, including the rocket that carried the Apollo 11 astronauts to the moon. And Debus would never have achieved any of this for America without first working in that deplorable Nazi V-2 factory. Uh, Kurt Debus would be awarded the U.S. Army's highest civilian decoration, the Exceptional Civilian Service Medal, uh, the Scott Gold Medal of the American Ordnance Association's Missile, and the a uh, Astronautics Division and NASA's Outstanding Leadership Award. Sorry, a lot of awards there with a lot of awards in them. Uh, he went on to win a lot of awards. I could spend 10 minutes listing them all off. He was elected to the National Space Hall of Fame in 1969. And the dude, you know, was a Nazi. One of some of 1,600, at least, German scientists and former Nazis that came to the U.S. to continue their work via Operation Paperclip. All 1,600 in some way, shape, or form, I would have to guess, committed serious ethical breaches on behalf of the Third Reich. And then the U.S. brought them across the Atlantic in secret to work for the U.S. military-industrial complex where some of them continued to engage in morally bankrupt behavior. All justified by the Cold War, anything to keep them and their secrets and knowledge out of Russian hands. Many of the Nazis recruited into Operation Paperclip went on to live long and comfortable lives, were respected by their colleagues. Some even managed to talk U.S. government officials into bringing their Nazi friends over to help them. Did U.S. officials morally struggle with these decisions? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, as we'll see at the top of today's timeline, America didn't need Hitler's former soldiers to, to help them cross the moral line of conducting non-consensual human experiments. It was already happening. And you couldn't even use the Cold War to justify it when it was uh, first happening. The following examples we will intersperse in our examination in the formation of Operation Paperclip, not a comprehensive list. 
Uh, probably not even close. Let's jump into some dates, names, and what the fuck did that really happen moments in today's no longer classified time suck timeline. After a word from today's sponsors, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. You know what's one of the best things to bring with you wherever you go? Raycon's Everyday Earbuds. Raycons offer amazing quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. Their tens of thousands of five-star reviews speak to that. Your Raycons can go with you everywhere so you can listen at any time. With eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, you don't have to worry about whether they're up for the task. Even though I'm not currently touring, I still travel a fair amount. And I love how small the case is. So easy to throw them in my jacket pocket like I did when Lindsay and I took my grandma to New Orleans. I use them on the plane to help fall asleep to some Nathaniel Rateliff and then Enola use them at the gym to get pumped up for a quick workout to some Chevelle. Perfect for both places. I was able to easily use noise isolation on the plane to block out flight noises and then switch to awareness mode at the gym so I'm not too lost in my own world and get in the way of others' workouts. Go to buyraycon.com slash timesuck today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for listening. Hope some of those deals appealed. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a timesuck timeline. Nineteen thirty-two. Let's kick things off by going back almost a decade before the U.S. entered World War II to talk about the Tuskegee experiments. Uh, while Nazi Germany was gearing up to do their own human experimentation, the U.S. was doing its own long before you know they brought over Germans uh, with Operation Paperclip. We've covered the Tuskegee experiments before, but for those who haven't heard about it, important enough to go over here again. In 1932, the U.S. Public Health Service, in collaboration with the Tuskegee Institute, the precursor to Tuskegee University, a historically black college located in Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, anyway, this location, the U.S. Public Health Service, began a study to determine the natural progression of syphilis when left untreated. It was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. 600 poor sharecroppers from Alabama, 399 of whom had previously contracted syphilis, were selected as subjects for this study and not told the true nature of the study. They were lied to. Many of them were told that they were being treated for syphilis uh, when they weren't. Uh, Some were given bullshit placebos, diagnostic procedures as treatments. Some were not told they had syphilis at all when they did have it. Uh, They were told the study was going to last for six months. It would last 40 fucking years. At least 28 would unnecessarily die from syphilis in this study. Uh, Researchers told patients they were being treated for bad blood, a local term used to describe several ailments, including syphilis, anemia, and fatigue. Because researchers wanted to see the natural progression of the disease, subjects were strongly discouraged from seeking treatment for the disease uh, elsewhere, from seeking help from any other doctors who actually might help them. In 1947, penicillin became widely accepted as a very efficient treatment, a very effective treatment for uh, syphilis, and these subjects still not offered it. And they didn't even know to look for it because, again, many told, uh, you know, that they had something other than syphilis. Doctors kept telling them they had bad blood. How fucked up is that? It's not even a thing. It was only when the story went to press and sparked widespread outrage in the public in 1972 that the study was finally terminated. Then in 1974, a class action suit filed by the NAACP resulted in an out-of-court settlement worth $10 million. $10 million seems mighty fucking low here. Uh, The last study participant died in January of 2004. Uh, Then in a 1944 sequel to the Tuskegee experiment, the U.S. Army and Navy hired University of Chicago doctors to infect 432 prisoners in custody at the Illinois State Penitentiary at Stateville with malaria and experiments designed to get a profile of the disease and develop a treatment for it. Most of the inmates were black. Zero of them received proper information about the treatment's risk or what it even was. Yeah, of course, uh, highly doubt if they would have been asked, hey, would you mind uh, being given malaria? We want to know what the fuck happens. 
And then we'll probably, you know, try some experimental treatments on you that we're not going to sure, you know, we're not sure they're even going to work. I doubt in that situation they would have said, fuck yeah, noise. I would love to be given a disease. Sweet. That's exactly what I was hoping for. When I got into prison was a disease. Thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity and experimental treatments that might not work, but, you know, could really mess me up in addition to the disease for free. Excuse me while I pinch myself. I must be dreaming. Uh, Nazi doctors on trial at Nuremberg in 1945 in 1956, would cite the Stateville Penitentiary Malaria Study as part of their defense for what they did. How it was hypocritical to be charged for human rights atrocities by others also committing similar atrocities. Now, did the U.S. take it as far as the Nazis did? No, no, they didn't. Not in numbers or in severeness of the program, but they did take it way fucking farther than they should have. Uh, way farther than what's even in the ballpark of moral. And because they did, the Nazis did have an argument to be made here. Classic pot calling the kettle black here. So hypocritical. Uh, the U.S. was committing its own atrocities in the name of science while sentencing former Nazis for doing the same shit. On December 23rd, 1936, Gerard Schrader accidentally develops Tobin, as we talked about, kicking off Germany's and then soon the world's production of chemical weapons. October 3rd, 1942, Germany's first successful test launch, those V rockets occur. Uh, that rocket designed, worked on by numerous men, as we've talked about, who will become Operation Paperclip scientists. Uh, the V-2 rocket would be first used in September of 1944. Soon, over 5,000 V-2s will be fired on you know, Britain alone. Approximately 1,100 will reach their target, and killing 2,724 people, badly injuring around another 6,000, almost all of them civilians. Uh, by early 1943, the German government began recalling from combat a number of scientists, engineers, and technicians from fighting in actual battles to work in research and development to bolster German defense for a protracted war with the USSR. This recall from frontline combat included 4,000 rocketeers who were sent to factories that were staffed, as we've already said, by slave laborers. Uh, Werner Ossenberg, the engineer scientist heading Germany's Defense Research Association, recorded the names of many of these men recalled back from the front lines in, in what became known as the Ossenberg List as they were reinstated to scientific work. The Ossenberg List would later uh, be essential to the formation of Operation Paperclip. In May of 1944, a series of secret operations that led to Operation Paperclip began when World War II wasn't officially over, when things were not looking really good for the Axis powers. Enter Samuel Goudsmit, a Dutch-American physicist. In May of 1944, Goudsmit became the scientific director of the Manhattan Project's Alsace mission. The Alsace mission's members, a team of British and U.S. military, scientific, and intelligence personnel, moved with the advancing allies to learn firsthand how close Germany was to developing its own atomic weapon. It was up to these men of science to determine just how close the Third Reich was to waging atomic, biological, or chemical warfare against Allied troops. The Alsace mission members were the first to label weapons of mass destruction, ABC warfare. The Alsace mission, the third uh, part of this mission, enters Germany on February 24th, 1945. Uh, the first two missions had investigated Italy and then France. By this time, it was obvious to mission members that none of Germany's nuclear materials and absolutely none of the German scientists must be allowed to fall into Soviet hands. This new objective became crucial as the Allies advanced towards Berlin. One key German facility lay square within the planned Soviet zone that would become East Germany, now enter Operation Harbridge. After France falls to the Allies, it was decided to give the French a zone of occupation in Germany when the Nazis finally surrendered. The zone given to the French was originally designated as an American zone. Several suspected nuclear research facilities were in this planned French zone, the strategy behind Operation Harbridge was to have a sizable force cut diagonally across in front of the advancing French army and seize the area long enough to capture any German scientists, seize and remove all available records, and destroy remaining facilities. 
In March of 1945, at Bonn University, a Polish lab technician finds pieces of the Ostenburg list stuffed in, an, stuffed in an improperly flushed toilet, and he then flushes them properly, and the list is lost forever. Fucking Polish. And that is all for today's Time Suck Timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. No, that would suck. That'd be a terrible, terrible ending. Uh, no, he grabs it. He hands it to someone important. That person hands it to someone else important and so on and so forth. The list eventually reaches the British intelligence agency, MI6, and then they flush it down the toilet along with a lot of other important intelligence information that they should have taken more seriously. Uh, no, no, they pass it along to U.S. intelligence. It reaches the hands of U.S. Army Major Robert B. Staver, uh, chief of the jet propulsion section of the research and intelligence branch of the U.S. Army Ordnance Corps, or Corps, and he uses the Ostenberg list to compile a list of German scientists to be captured and interrogated. And Werner von Braun heads Major Staver's list. Second on that list, the Bavarian werewolf, the body slamming bratwurst, the Deutschland DDT, Magnus von Strongbraun. No, that's fucking nonsense. Uh, let's move it along to April 12th. April 24th, what am I doing? Uh, 1945, Operation Harborage, Harborage is successful. The U.S. makes it into strategically important areas of Germany before the Russians do. An officer named Colonel Posh seizes a large atomic physics laboratory, maybe Colonel Posh, and takes into custody several sought-after scientists. Those scientists tell the Americans about a group of other scientists who had fled to Bavaria. Three days later on the 27th, the captured German scientists are transferred to the city of, city of Heidelberg for further questioning where information on the whereabouts of German atomic research records are revealed by a German nuclear physicist, Karl von Weizsäcker. Uh, the records have been sealed in a metal drum, stored in a cesspool in back of uh, von Weiss Weizsäcker's house. So thank God he stored them. Uh, while Operation Harbridge was underway, continuing investigations at the Alsace Forward Headquarters at Heidelberg are making significant progress. Uh, another major accomplishment of Alsace 3 was an operation headed up by John Lansdale into an area na uh, near Strasfurt. Uh, after seizing a salt mine known as the Wefo plant, Lansdale and his men discover an inventory of close to 1,100 tons of uranium ore. Don't want the Soviets to get that. That's make enough to, uh, or that's enough to make once it's converted to enriched uranium. And as long as they didn't forget to carry the one, uh, about 20 atomic bombs, I think. I couldn't find any exact understandable answer for how many tons of uranium ore do you need to make an atomic bomb? But I did Google that exact question, which I'm pretty sure sent whatever FBI agent is keeping an eye on me now, uh, some type of push notification or alert or something. Fucking Cummins! Now what's he looking up? Why can't we just arrest this guy already? I'm tired of him blowing up my phone. Uh, early May of 1945, along comes Operation Epsilon. Operation Epsilon was the code name of a program in which allied forces near the end of World War II detained 10 German scientists, including Werner Karl Heisenberg, Kurt Diebner, Otto Hahn, Karl von uh, Weizsäcker, Max von Lau, uh, who were thought to have worked on Nazi Germany's nuclear program. These scientists uh, were captured between early May and late June 1945, interned at Farm Hall, uh, a bugged house in God Manchester, England, from July 3rd, 1945 to January 3rd, 1946. The Americans at this point just trying to figure out how close the Germans had been to developing an atomic bomb. So they uh, listened to the German scientists' conversations. And when the German scientists learned that an atomic bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima, they expressed, they expressed surprise and shock that the Americans were able to develop the weapon in such a short amount of time. Amusingly, they also had this interaction. Uh, Diebner said, I wonder whether there are microphones installed here. And Heisenberg said, microphones installed, and laughed. Oh no, they're not as cute as all that. 
I don't think they know the real Gestapo methods. They're a bit old-fashioned in that respect. I love the use of old-fashioned here. <laughs> Silly Americans with old-fashioned respect for people's privacy. Not even bugging people's personal conversations or anything. Little did they know that we here in America like to invade everyone's privacy. And we've been doing that for many years. We're not old-fashioned and are, in fact, very Gestapo in some ways. Thank you very much. Uh, I do actually wonder how much of what we all do and say is monitored and stored in service. And, and like, if you ever end up uh, as a priority on a watch list, how much of your former private conversations and movements, purchases, search history, et cetera, can be tracked? I'm guessing so much. A lot of former parlor users uh, finding that out now if they didn't know already. Pretty scary, you know, how much of our uh, information that, you know, whatever we post and stuff, it's fucking just lives out there somewhere. Uh, with many of our smart devices listening to us, supposedly only when woken with their smart words, could the government clandestinely be uh, paying big companies like Amazon, Apple for that info, then storing it all in massive server farms? I have to think that could, in fact, definitely be happening. And someone will be talking about, you know, Operation whatever the fuck that's called uh, in some future podcast decades from now. Uh, eek. Uh, May 22nd, 1945, Major Sauver's original or Staver's original intent with Operation Overcast was only to interview the scientists. Uh, but then he, you know, what he learned from them changed the operation's purpose. Major St uh, Staver is the chief of the jet propulsion section of the research and intelligence branch of the U.S. Army Ordnance Corps. Uh, dude, combing through the Ostenberg list in case you forgot. A lot of names to keep track of in the suck. And on May 22nd, he transmitted to the U.S. Pentagon headquarters Colonel jo uh, Joel Holmes' telegram uh, urging the evacuation of German scientists and their families as most important for the Pacific war effort. Most of the Osenberg List engineers worked at uh, Pinaminda, a village in Northeast Germany containing a German center of the same name dedicated to missile and rock research and manufacture where Nazis developed the B-2 rocket. And getting the go-ahead to capture these rocket scientists, the Allies initially uh, housed them and their families in Landshut, Bavaria, in Southern Germany, then in the summer of 1945, Project Safe Haven now launches to prevent German scientists from going to work for Spain or Argentina or Egypt, all countries that sympathize with Nazi Germany. Uh, America's newly formed Combined Intelligence Object Objective Subcommittee, now responsible for scouting and kidnapping high-profile individuals for the deprivation of technological advancements by the U.S.'s enemies. Uh, the U.S. instigates an evacuation operation of scientific personnel issuing orders such as on orders of military government, you are to report with your family and baggage as much as you can carry tomorrow noon at 1300 hours at the town square in Bitterfield. There is no need to bring winter clothing. Easily carried possessions such as family documents, jewelry, and the like should be taken along. You will be transported by motor vehicle to the nearest railway station. From there, you will travel on to the West. Please tell the bearer of this letter how large your family is. Those with special skills or knowledge were taken to detention and interrogation centers, such as one codenamed Dustbin to be held, interrogated, in some cases for months. Uh, a few of the scientists were gathered up in Operation Overcast, but most were transported to villages in the countryside where there were neither research facilities nor work. They were provided stipends, forced to report twice weekly to police headquarters to prevent them from leaving. The Joint Chiefs of Staff Directive on Research and Testing stated that technicians and scientists should be released only after all interested agencies were satisfied that all desired intelligence information had been obtained from them. Uh, beginning on July 20th, 1945, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff manages the captured German rocketeers under Operation Overcast. Then, when the Camp Overcast name of the scientist quarters becomes lo uh, locally known, the program is renamed dun, 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 Operation Paperclip in November of 1945. Uh, July 20th is, therefore, the, the date when Operation Paperclip really began, even though it wasn't named that. 
Uh, some sources list the date as July 19th, if you see that online. Also in 1945, the Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency formed to manage Operation Paperclip. The JIOA was created solely and specifically to recruit and hire Nazi scientists and put them on weapons projects and in scientific intelligence programs within the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the CIA, starting in 1947 and other organizations. Uh, the CIA was, you know, the part that was started in 1947. And in this new department, recruiters whitewashed scientists' files to remove their Nazi affiliations. They wrote new, clean biographies for the scientists. Uh, they issued them with military security clearances, uh, gave them tickets to America. They were dotting the I's. They were crossing the T's. They were deleting shit like freezing Jewish prisoners to death or burning disabled kids alive. Uh, World War II is declared officially over then on September 2nd, 1945 when representatives from the uh, Empire of Japan signed surrender documents aboard the USS Missouri. Soon after the war's end in later September, the first group of seven rocket scientists, all aerospace engineers, all Operation Paperclip recruits, arrive at Fort Strong, located on Long Island in Boston Harbor. Only roughly uh, 1,593 you know, left to go. Uh, beginning, in late 1940, beginning in late 1945, uh, three rocket scientist groups arrive in the U.S. for duty at Fort Bliss, Texas, and at White Sands Proving Grounds, New Mexico, as War Department Special Employees. On November 20th, 1945, the Nuremberg Trials begin with the most famous of the trials, the Major War Criminals Trial. Held to bring Nazi war criminals to justice, the Nuremberg, the Nuremberg Trials were a series of 13 trials carried out in Nuremberg, Germany, between 1945 and 1949. Uh, the defendants included Nazi party officials and high-ranking military officers, along with German industrialists, lawyers, and doctors accused of committing war crimes. And the best known of the Nuremberg trials was that opening prosecution, the trial of major war criminals, held from November 20th, 1945 to October 1st, 1946. Uh, most of the time when the Nuremberg trials are referenced, this is the trial being referred to, 24 individuals are indicted along with six Nazi organizations determined to be criminal like the Gestapo. In the end, the International Tribunal finds all but three of the defendants guilty, 12 are sentenced to death, one in absentia, and the rest are given prison sentences ranging from 10 years to life behind bars. Uh, 10 years to life behind bars. Yeah, this is what the Nazi scientists were avoiding by making deals to either come to America or go to Russia. A strong possibility of either a death sentence or a lengthy imprisonment. On September 3rd, 1946, President Truman officially approves Operation Paperclip, which I find amusing since it had been going on for quite some time. Uh, now let's head back to America uh, let's, I, guess, I guess let's say in America, since we were just talking about fucking President Truman in 1949, the Green Run takes place in Washington State, just a couple hours drive from the Suck Dungeon. Did not know about this until this uh, week. On December 2nd, December 3rd of 1949, the U.S. government released, on purpose, radioactive fission products, uh, products from the Hanford Site Plutonium Production Facility, located in eastern Washington. Radioisotopes were then supposed to be detected by U.S. Air Force reconnaissance. Sources cite 5,500 to 12,000 curies of iodine-131 released and an even greater amount of uh, xenon-133. In an oral history of the event, Leland Fox says that his father was in the military and was bivouacked on the banks of the Wenatchee River during the Green Run. Then there's this quote, people with radiation suits walked around and moved the little colored flags as the radiation was detected. The cooking was done outdoors as they slept near the beach. The officers did not stay long except to give orders and then drive away. Almost everyone that my father knew was there, who was there has died of cancer. My father had chronic lymph lymphocytic leukemia and died from the complications of lung cancer. The Fed said that the leukemia cannot be caused by iodine-131, but his doctor, Dr. Bonnie uh, Takasui of Burien, Washington, said that it most probably was. Why the fuck did they do this? 
Uh, a physicist, Carl C. Uh, Gomertzfelder, PhD, familiar with this operation, believes it was done so that if the Soviets ever secretly contaminated the U.S. with dangerous radiation, we would know how to determine just how bad they had contaminated us. So basically, in 1949, the fucking U.S. military knowingly radiated American soil to try and find out how to be able to know if Russia ever radiated American soil in the future. That's like shooting an innocent person in the face and then having a forensic team immediately swoop in to see if the crime scene evidence matches the crime of someone uh, getting shot in the fucking face. Just, yep. Yeah, it checks out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all, uh, all checks out. Now, now drag out that innocent corpse. Uh, this happens a few years after Nazis are sentenced to death for experimenting on innocent people. And I know that what happened near Hanford, not even close to the same as burning disabled children to study burn wounds and treatment, but also really not a good look. Uh, also 1949, they knew how dangerous radiation was. And then they did this. Uh, best case, really negligent. Worst case, they knowingly sacrificed the health of some of their own you know, soldiers, some workers to study radiation effects, aka they experimented on innocent people. Then in 1950, the U.S. military does something even worse, harder to justify, uh, really hard to make a case for any sort of negligence on this one. The Army sprayed large quantities of serratia marchesens, a, bacterial, a bacteriological agent over San Francisco, a biological weapon, uh, promoting an outbreak of pneumonia-like illnesses and directly causing the death of at least one man, 75-year-old pipe fitter Ed Nevins. Over 25 years later, the Senate subcommittee, or in, excuse me, in Senate subcommittee hearings in 1977, the U.S. Army reveals that weeks before Mr. Nevin, Mr. Nevin sickened and died, the Army had staged a mock biological attack on San Francisco, secretly spraying the city uh, with agents thought to be harmless. Mock attack? Harmless? Mm. Tell that to the Nevin's family. Uh, a case filed in re relation to the incident resulted in the suit being dismissed as the judge determined that the government had exercised due discretion in its experiment. And again, tell that to the Nevins family. Experiment they did not have to conduct, killed Ed. Uh, the Nevins family never received any compensation for this incident leading to Ed Nevins' death. Uh, from 1950 to 1953, the U.S. Army released its chemical clouds over six U.S. and Canadian cities. The tests were designed to test dispersal patterns of chemical weapons. Army records noted that the compounds used over Winnipeg, Canada, where there were numerous reports of respiratory illnesses after this happened, involved cadmium, a highly toxic chemical. The Pentagon never told U.S. federal, the government, you know, uh, the U.S. federal government that it would be spraying a chemical on Winnipeg and two Alberta towns. And they sure as fuck didn't let Canadian officials know about this. They just secretly dropped carcinogens on unsuspecting Canadian and American cities. Why? Just testing some Cold War shit uh, that they believe would help them prepare for the possibility of war with Mother Russia. No big whoops. It's the Pentagon doing some, uh, you know, Nazi shit. Uh, when these chemical clouds are being created in 1951, the U.S. Army secretly contaminated the Norfolk Naval Supply Center as well in Virginia with infectious bacteria. Uh, the Army released an organism called Aspergillus fumigatus at the Norfolk Naval Supply Center because they said most workers were black. And for some reason, the testers imagined an enemy might target black soldiers at military bases with this specific organism. Uh-huh. A report said, since Negroes are more susceptible to coccidioides than are whites, this fungus disease was simulated by using Aspergillus fumigatus. Aspergillus further was known to cause lethal infections at the time. That report sounds like so much bullshit. No! What? We didn't pick that supply center because we're racist and we wanted to target innocent black Americans rather than white Americans. Well, how fucking dare you even think that? No! What we were trying to do in case anyone's interested in the truth was, you know, 
make sure our enemies aren't going to come up with some kind of super fungus and kill all of our black citizens who we love so much, Obvi, and we wanted to get proactive in protecting them. So we risked many of their lives without talking to them about it, like good friends do for people they care about. Uh, two similar experiments were undertaken years later. The Army conceded that it had released microorganisms at Washington National Airport in 1965 and into the New York City subway system in 1966 during peak travel hours. No real word on how they justified those those experiments. Uh, uh, well, they said the purpose was to see how the bacteria spread and survived as people went about their routine activities. So that's, that's fun. What the fuck? Uh, at least I guess those attacks don't seem racist. You know, just equal opportunity fucking over innocent citizens. In 1953, two experiments are conducted that were far more nefarious. The United States Atomic Energy Commission, the inheritor of the Manhattan Project, conducted numerous radiation experiments, experiments considered grossly unethical today. I don't know how they weren't considered grossly unethical then. Uh, two were particularly bad. At the University of Iowa, newborns and pregnant women were intentionally exposed to radioactive iodine, knowing this would be severely detrimental to their health. The first study involved exposing pregnant women to radioactive iodine, then studying their aborted embryos in order to understand the way the radiation affected their pregnancies. Uh, these were not, uh, I don't want this baby abortions here. No, this was uh, my body is kicking out my baby because radiation has fucked it up type abortions here. Also in 1953, the AEC sponsored a study to discover if radioactive iodine affected premature babies differently than full-term babies. So they, you know, just uh, radiated a whole bunch of fucking babies. On the experiment, researchers from Harper's Hospital in Detroit orally administered iodine-131 to 65 premature and full-term infants who weighed anywhere from 2.1 to 5.5 pounds. And researchers at the University of Nebraska College of Medicine fed iodine-131 to 28 healthy infants through a gastric tube to test the concentration of iodine in the infant's thyroid glands. Uh, what happened to these fucking babies? Released reports don't seem to say. And there were other similar studies done. Pretty fucked up. Pretty Nazi-like. From 1953 to 1973, the secret CIA project MKUltra took place. I already did a full suck on this one. I know I mentioned it earlier in this one. I'll just give a quick summary here. MKUltra, a series of experiments conducted by the CIA to test many different things, from electric shock therapy to the effect of mind-altering drugs. They wanted to discover and then counteract, amongst other things, means of controlling people's minds especially those of military prisoners. They wanted to develop some sort of magic truth serum to use in interrogations. And they dosed unsuspecting people with LSD to see how they would react. Sometimes they're given huge doses. Unknowing subjects were at bars or at the beach when researchers dropped drugs in their drinks and observed their reactions. <laughs> this one, out of all the fucked up, it's still so fucked up, but it also is kind of funny to me. Somebody out at the beach just enjoying themselves and then they just get randomly dosed. Uh, the CIA even dosed its own agents without their knowledge. And then one of their own died when he was uh, drugged without his knowledge. He threw himself from a, from a hotel building. Yet another instance of the U.S. government using meat sacks as guinea pigs. I hope I'm never used in any of these sick experiments, obviously. But if I am, any CIA agents who might be listening, can you please, you know, do this kind of experiment with me? Just if you have to dose me with something, if you have to like, I don't know, fucking give me some kind of drugs or radiate me or something. If I, if I get to choose, can I have hallucinogens? Even if it's a fucking lot of them. And then maybe give me a bag of more of them, explaining where what they are, you know, where I, where I can get more of them, you know, if I, if I get to choose. On April 14th, 1955, Werner von Braun, along with many other former Nazis, applauded as they're sworn into U.S. citizenship. 1956, 1957, Operation Dropkick takes place. It's a fucking great name for an operation. Operation Dropkick. Sounds like a band name. 
I'm probably thinking of the Dropkick Murphys, but it's, it's pretty horrifying. Army chemical and biological weapons researchers released millions of mosquitoes on Savannah, Georgia and Avon Park, Florida, in order to test the ability of these insects to carry and deliver yellow fever and dengue fever. Hundreds of American citizens fell ill, suffering from fevers, respiratory distress, stillbirths, not good, encephalitis, typhoid. Then army researchers disguised themselves as public health workers in order to photograph and test these victims, but not fucking tell them what happened to them. Oh my God. American citizens given yellow fever. Yellow fever is no joke. It still kills about 30,000 people a year worldwide. This all makes me think, what if we face a new threat now, as serious as the threat of Soviet Russia was to the U.S. government in the 50s? What might we as a nation justify doing to our own citizens in the name of weapons research today? Thanks to the dark web, I'd like to think we're a little more safe than we used to be, thanks to hackers who could expose new secret tests a little easier than it was to do so in the 50s. But does the U.S. military possess new technology that makes it you know, easier than ever to get away with this shit? They might. They might be able to hide things on the web or make things disappear more than I think they might be able to do. I don't know. No part of me believes that we're ethically above doing these things now. Also, if current or future unethical experiments help us win another war or stop another one from starting, how unethical is it really then? If you think about greater good, big picture, if you kill 500 innocent people, uh, you know, to save 500,000 other innocent people from dying, are you a monster? Are you a savior? Are you both? Easy to take a high horse and, uh, you know, have some stance of it's never okay, should never be done. And I lean towards that, but is that true? Is that a good mentality to, to lose a war with? Not saying any of this is right or justified on any level. Just, uh, man, think the ethics surrounding this. It's so complicated. Uh, between 1966 and 1972, the U.S. dumps between 11 and 13 million gallons of Agent Orange, a dioxin-powered herbicide, over about 4.5 million acres, uh, South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. The government of Vietnam estimates that local civilian casualties from Agent Orange are, are more than half a million. Holy shit, half a million. That's more than the total civilian deaths estimated from the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the U.S. use of Agent Orange in the jungles of Vietnam, you know, count as a war crime? I mean, if you think it should not, what if some other nation fought a war on your nation's soil and used Agent Orange or something similar, and then half a million of your citizens died? Uh, to this day, areas that experience a high level of saturation report birth defects and other health problems, like an abnormal amount. Uh, tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers were also the victims of Agent Orange poisoning. They didn't know what the fuck was, you know, going on with it either. About 3 million Americans served in the armed forces in Vietnam, nearby areas during the time of the Vietnam War. Many of these veterans exposed to Agent Orange during their time, uh, you know, very not handled properly as far as like benefits and medical, you know, treatment payments by the U.S. government. How many have died of cancer that Agent Orange gave them? We don't even know. On November 25th, 1969, President Nixon discontinues all offensive aspects of the U.S. biological warfare program, kind of. Uh, over the course of his 27-year history, the program weaponized and stockpiled the following seven bioagents and pursued research on many more. Anthrax, uh, tularemia, oh, tularemia, tularemia, brusol, god dang it, these fucking words, that you like, I'll never say these words again. Brucellosis, Q fever, Venezuelan equinine, Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus, mm -hmm. botulism, uh, staphylococcal enterotoxin B, okay? Uh, defensive research on biological warfare continues after 1969 and because sometimes the best defense is a strong offense. We might still be doing uh, some, of this, some of this shit as you're gonna see here. In 1981, Fidel Castro blamed an outbreak of dengue fever in Cuba on the CIA. 
The fever killed 188 people, including 88 children. So maybe we were not done using biological weapons offensively. Uh, on July 27th, 1981, speaking to a crowd of about 75,000, Mr. Castro cited U.S. congressional testimony about the development by the U.S. of biological weapons, including plans to use mosquitoes in biological warfare to carry diseases such as yellow fever and dengue. Seven years later, it's reported that in 1988, uh, a Cuban exile leader named Eduardo Aracino, or Aracina admitted to bringing some germs into Cuba from the U.S. back in 1980. Tough to verify this, but considering the history of the CIA in Cuba we've touched on and other sucks, I would not even be a little bit surprised if this happened. Uh, 1992, an epidemic of dengue fever strikes Managua, Nicaragua. Nearly 50,000 people come down with the fever. Dozens die. This was the first outbreak of that disease in Nicaragua. And this outbreak just happened to occur at the height of the CIA's war against the Nicaraguan Sandinista National Liberation Front, a socialist party the U.S. did not want to take over Nicaragua again, a party the U.S. had been opposed to since its formation in 1961. And this outbreak directly followed a series of low-level, quote-unquote, reconnaissance flights over the capital city by U.S. planes. Weird. What a weird series of coincidences. Uh, to this day, many blame the U.S. for the epidemic. And if I was forced to bet on this, I would bet that we are responsible. The peace is fit. Uh, 1996, the Cuban government once again accuses the U.S. of engaging in biological aggression. This time it involves an outbreak of thrips. Uh, thrips palmy, an insect that kills potato crops, palm trees, and other vegetation. Thrips first showed up in Cuba uh, on December 12, 1996, following some low-level flights over the island by some U.S. government spray planes. <laughs> Weird! More very unusual and extremely suspicious coincidences. It almost seems like the U.S. may have attacked Cuba with biological weapons as recently as 1996. In uh, 1999, the U.S. Department of Defense starts Project Bacchus, a covert investigation to determine whether it was possible to construct an anthrax production facility with off-the-shelf equipment. During a two-year simulation, the facility is constructed. It successfully produces an anthrax-like bacterium, supposedly to figure out whether other terrorists could do this as well. Also, though, in doing this, the U.S. is, you know, making biological weapons. The participating scientists were able to make about a kilogram, 2.2 pounds of highly refined bacterial particles. Project Bacchus, one of three similar projects, claimed to be perfectly legal by both the Clinton and Bush administrations under the Biological Weapons Convention. However, a lot of people in other countries disagreed. The U.S. government's desire to keep programs like this a secret was, according to Bush administration officials, a significant reason that Bush rejected a draft agreement signed by 143 nations to strengthen a 1972 United Nations Biological Weapons Committee treaty. Why would we not want to strengthen that treaty? Probably because we were still definitely making biological weapons. And, and I think that's enough examples to make the point that as as fucked up as Operation Paperclip was on a lot of levels, and as fucked up as all the things the Nazis, you know, recruited into Operation Paperclip did, uh, you know, how, how bad they were. We can't just blame Nazis for cruelly experimenting on innocent people. The U.S. government has also done it. Recently, as has Russia and so many other nations, I could have used so many other examples. Uh, sadly, we may never know all the ways the U.S. government and other governments, institutions, corporations, and private individuals may be secretly experimenting on us meat sacks even right now. And I don't want to go full conspiracy nut and suddenly find myself in a QAnon or Antifa chat room, but I also don't want to go full blind to reality optimist and pretend this shit doesn't happen. Maybe if we talk about it often enough from time to time, it'll, it'll happen less. Uh, 2014, an investigative journalist, Annie uh, Jacobson, publishes Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. 
Jay Watkins of the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence called it the most comprehensive, up-to-date narrative available to the public. It was the main source used for a lot of today's info. Uh, interestingly, the majority of the Operation Paperclip files have not been declassified yet. So much more may have occurred that we just don't know about. What are we going to find out in the future? What if someday we learn that we did actually work with Dr. Joseph Mengele, that we did hire him to do more barbaric shit? What if we knew where he was the whole time following World War II until his death? You know, and we were working with him that entire time, paying him to be a monster. And uh, after everything you've, you know, we've gone over today, would that really surprise you? Let's hop out of this week's Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Operation Paperclip, it happened and left behind a legacy of ballistic missiles, uh, sovereign gas bombs, underground bunkers, space capsules, weaponized bubonic plague, and so much more. For many Operation Paperclip beneficiaries, it was a legacy of blood and bodies, both in Germany and in the U.S., where innocent people were either horrifically tortured or given fake treatment, you know, when sick, that made them even sicker, uh, may have also won the U.S. the Cold War, though. The race to the moon would very likely not have been won by America without Nazi help, also, enhanced weapons of mass destruction, those ABC weapons developed in part by former Nazis for the U.S., may have prevented World War III from ever happening. Not kidding. That good old mad doctrine of mutually assured destruction. If Nazi scientists had not been recruited into Operation Paperclip, would the U.S. have developed enough weaponry to scare the USSR into a giant, let's not maybe create an actual apocalypse that kills everyone's stalemate? Maybe. No, maybe not. Also interesting to learn or remember that the U.S. was doing some of the same evil shit long before bringing over Nazis with the Tuskegee experiments and numerous other unethical and secret programs. And interesting that the U.S. continued to conduct unethical military experiments after World War II. After the Nazis were long gone, or at least, you know, no longer working for Hitler, can't blame the Nazis in those experiments. Americans weren't following their orders, uh, but in some cases they were following ours. And we could have done a whole separate time suck or several of them on other nations, unethical and sometimes downright fucking evil human experiments. Check some of this shit out. During the 70s and 80s, 1970s, 1980s, the South African Defense Force forced lesbian and gay military personnel to undergo sex change operations. Forced them. Part of a secret program to purge homosexuality in the army. The program included psychological coercion, chemical castration, electric shock, and, uh, and other unethical medical experiments. An estimated 900 forced sexual reassignment operations may have, all, may have also been performed between 1971 and 1989 at military hospitals. There are all kinds of rumors about shit uh, that has gone on in North Korea over the years. A former prison guard who defected reported that prisoners were used for medical operation practice. Talking about practice, to quote Alan Iverson, uh, by young doctors, no anesthesia. He also described deliberate efforts to study physical resistance by starving prisoners to death. Uh, according to him, he saw state-sanctioned sadists hit prisoners with hammers in the back of their heads until they lost their memory, became basically fucking zombies. Then they were, uh, ended up getting used for target practice, just all sorts of heinous shit. Uh, starting in 1939 and lasting throughout World War II, the Soviet Union tested mustard gas and numerous other biological and chemical weapons on prisoners in their gulags. Who knows how many were tortured and killed and on and on and on. We already did a suck on Japan's Unit 731, whose researchers were every bit as barbaric as Nazi doctors like Joseph Mengele. There are sadly countless examples of state-sanctioned cruelty from around the globe. The days of medieval torture did not stop when the medieval era ended. Torture just took on new labels like experiments or interrogation. It seems that, uh, you know, historically, no matter, what, no matter what one's nationality, at least in small government circles, 
that the ends of scientific progress have tended to justify the means of using human being, human beings to get there. The most shocking aspect of Operation Paperclip to me, when you look at the context of similar atrocities around the world, is that it's not that shocking. It's in a dark way, you know, kind of par for the course. Does that make it right? No. No, I don't think it does. I don't think the ends always justify the means. Probably a very good thing that I'm not in charge of any nation, you know, probably too soft. I couldn't sign off on a lot of this shit. I don't think so. Maybe any of it, any of it. Uh, I'd want to find another way. And then if some, you know, enemy nation was willing to do what I wasn't, any place I'd be in charge of, you know, probably get fucked. That's depressing, right? Uh, but you know what's not depressing? Technology. Technology has advanced to the point that through the miracle of computers, through living tissue being able to be created through innovations like stem cell manipulation, right? 3D printing of biological tissue. Uh, you know, this the same progress that previously could only be achieved through horrific medical experimentation on innocent, unwilling, often unaware human beings can now be achieved in other victimless ways. That's exciting. Maybe this shit's behind us now. You know, maybe it's at least almost behind us. I don't think meat sacks uh, are, are done doing bad shit to one another. Probably not even close, but at least maybe this chapter is almost fully written. I hope so. Time now for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Operation Paperclip forgave and even rewarded former Nazi war criminals by bringing them to work for the American government they had just tried so hard to destroy. Just that alone, that part is so weird. They just tried to destroy uh, the U.S. and its allies, and now they're working for them. Uh, the alternative was to let Nazi knowledge fall into Soviet hands, and the American government wasn't about to let that happen. And they weren't going to, you know, do the, another alternative, which would have been just killing them. Number two, some of the former Nazis, uh, like Werner von Braun, had illustrious careers in the U.S. in both the public and the private sector after the war. Number three, the U.S. government has done experiments on its own people over and over again even before we brought over the Nazis, notably with the Tuskegee experiments and the Stateville Penitentiary Malaria Study. Makes me wonder what we're doing today. Number four, fucking t-shirt soup. That's going to stick with me. One of several Nazi Walters we went over today, Walter Scheiba, picked 150 slave laborers and instead of giving them, you know, just usual gruel of watery broth, gave them this weird fucked up t-shirt soup paste. Of the 150 subjects, 116 died before the cruel experiment ended. I can't believe any of them lived through that. Uh, number five, new info. Not all Nazi war criminals sprung by the U.S. and other World War II victors were scientists, physicians, or technological experts. Some, like Reinhard Galen, were given fresh starts because of their intelligence-gathering expertise. Basically, they were, they were like really good torturers. Uh, Galen, head of Germany's Foreign Army's uh, East Intelligence Unit during World War II, had been Hitler's chief intelligence officer on the Eastern Front. His agents brutally interrogated millions of prisoners, most of them Soviet POWs. Many of them tortured, murdered, starved. Uh, Galen organized Nazi collaborating paramilitary groups from Ukraine and other Slavic countries that then went on to commit even further atrocities, believing that they'd be spared or given better treatment by the Nazis if they helped persecute Jews and other minorities themselves. And in May of 1945, after being captured by Allied forces, Galen offered to hand over a treasure trove of microfilm on the Soviet Union in exchange for his freedom. His considerable knowledge on the Soviet Union made him not just a good resource, but an attractive prospective employee. Galen and three assistants were secretly flown to Washington, D.C., where they were interrogated. In D.C., Galen met uh, OSS, forerunner of the CIA, Chief uh, Bill Donovan and Alan Dulles, who headed OSS operations in Europe at the time. Dulles would eventually be appointed CIA director by Eisenhower. Uh, with the OSS's help, Galen worked out a deal that shielded him from prosecution for war crimes. 
He was then hired to reconnect to reconnect and oversee a vast network of spies to get intelligence on the Soviets instead of for Hitler. And he signed a contract with the CIA for $5 million a year in 1949. And as long as Galen's organization produced valuable information, the CIA gave him essentially whatever he wanted, including helping to get other Nazi war criminals out of Europe. And Galen then set up an underground, so then, you know, Galen set up an underground escape network to help over 5,000 Nazis flee Europe to South and Central America, all on the CIA's dime. How fucking crazy is that? He would die in West Germany in 1979, the age of 77, another Nazi to live a long post-war life. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Operation Paperclip has been sucked. I found today's information extremely interesting and, of course, you know, pretty disturbing. Very, very, uh, very provocative. Hope you did too. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for helping, making time stick every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Jill Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Sorceress Evans, Bit Elixir, working on the app and the website. Logan Art Warlock Keith running badmagicmerch.com, <laughs> kicking out weird shit like Dahmer's Wings, uh, working on our socials along with Liz Hernandez. And again, the new and improved customer service email, uh, store at badmagicproductions.com if you have any merch-related issues or questions. Uh, thanks again to all those who have joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group, roughly 25,000 members in there to meet if you haven't met them yet. Thanks to Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes for running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Uh, thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad, Jesse, Becky, and Cody for running wild on Discord. Uh, thanks to all you Space Lizards playing Time Stuck Trivia on the app. Bodie 210 currently in the round seven lead with 3,063 points. So many people playing. I love seeing it. Next week, we get back to true crime. The exchange war crimes for true crime with Israel Keys. Israel Keys, a lesser-known serial killer, but that doesn't make his crimes less horrific. A man who made his home in Anchorage, Alaska. Just like previous suck killer, Robert Butcher Baker Hansen, Israel managed to fool almost everyone he came across. Uh, they believed he was a loving father and boyfriend, a super soldier who performed well when he's in the army, a business owner of his own construction company, Keys Construction. And I guess, you know, he, he was those things. He was also, though, a sociopathic serial killer, someone who traveled the country, often renting cars and driving hundreds of miles across state lines to deposit various kill kits. And these kill kits were everything he needed to perform his horrific deeds. Ropes, guns, ammo, Drano used to accelerate body decomposition. Uh, dude really prepped for his crimes. He studied, literally, took pages directly out of Ted Bundy's book, spending hours reading about serial killers, both real and fictional. And he may have gotten cosmetic surgery even to alter himself to become the best serial killer he could be. Took it very seriously. And in 2012, he was arrested for the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Koenig, an 18-year-old barista. Then when the police found him, they soon realized not the first time he'd done that. Investigators soon came to believe that Israel probably started murdering as early as 1996 when he was 18, flying under the FBI's radar for over a decade. How did he manage to do that? Uh, what horrifying fates did his victims suffer when they were unlucky enough to find themselves in his sights? Find out all that and more next week on Time Suck. And right now, Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Now let's open things up with some comedy. After uh, another heavy episode, uh, limp dick sucker Christopher Fanning has something to share with us all. Call back to a really old episode here about one of my many lies and about how about how this one uh, how you can spread genital warts by hand. He writes, "You motherfucking mushmouth, mood killing son of a bitch." Just wanted to let you know how you screwed up things between me and my lady. Well, she was taking care of me, so to speak, 
And all of a sudden she says, I'm sorry, but this cold, dry air has made my hands not so smooth. So all of a motherfucking second, you fucking pop into my head talking about warts and how STDs can be transferred by hand. I know you were full of shit about that, but your bearded face pops up into my head with your forehead full of warts. <laughs> it's quite an image. Uh, you want to talk about a mood killer? Well, thanks a lot for fucking up my blowjob, you sick bastard. So of course she is wondering why I went soft. I didn't know how to explain it to her. Uh, now she does not listen to any podcast, but says it's not a big deal. I'm sure it happens to most men. Well, guess what? Now all I can hear when she says that is you and Chikatilo's voice saying, what's this big deal? Fuck you, Dan. Fuck you for forcing me to tell her that a dude and a serial killer was what popped into my head while she was giving me head. Hope you suffer some soft shame, cock. JK, not really. Keep on sucking, Chris. Oh, holy shit, Chris. Uh, uh, I had tears in my eyes first time I was reading this. <laughs> I really did fuck you up here. What a hilarious saying to try and explain. I hope you were able to power through and redeem yourself at another time after this message was sent. I hope that you do not uh, continue to forever connect my forehead covered in general warts uh, with oral sex. But if that does happen, uh, please write in about it because we'd all get a good laugh out of it. Uh, now, super sucker Griffin Hayes writes in with a connection to the FLDS section of the Mormonism suck. I found very interesting. He writes, greetings, suck master flash. My college roommate put me onto your stand-up. He whispered to me. And late, uh, and last August, while driving from Arizona to Pennsylvania for college, I listened to the Patty Hearst suck and I was hooked. Now I'm transferring schools. Excuse me. My dad and I are currently driving my car with all my possessions across the country. Uh, I've gotten him hooked on the suck as well. Today, we listened to the Mormonism suck. And lo and behold, my dad has a Warren Jeff story. He's a longtime police officer, currently a sergeant in criminal investigations. But when he was a rookie fresh out of field training, he and another officer responded to a domestic violence call between two women. Upon arriving, they were told by one of them that they were sisters. She was like late 40s at the time. The other woman appeared to be in her 60s or 70s. Little suspect, but hey, oops, children happen. They had a fight. Her sister had gone to her room and they were going to stay apart for the rest of the night. It was a big ass house. So my dad and his colleague figured there would be no big issue here. As he went through the house to take her sister's statement, my dad noticed there were a bunch of pictures of people on the mantle over the fireplace, but he didn't think anything of it. They took the other woman's statement, it matched up, and they left. As they walked back to the patrol car to their patrol cars, the other officer asked my dad to meet him at a nearby park. Uh, turns out they were not sisters. They were Warren Jeff's first wife and mother, respectively. The pictures on the mantle were of the elders of the FLDS and smack in the middle of all of them was that motherfucker himself. It was believed they were in town about six hours south of Colorado City looking to convert new FLDS members. My dad was told that if he ever saw men at that house to call his supervisor because there was a good chance they were wanted by the FBI. Crazy world we live in. He never heard from or saw them again and seen as they are close to one of the worst fucking people alive in America today, I totally understand why. On the off chance you read this on the show, can you give a shout out to my dad? He served in the army for 10 years and yeah, there are some really bad cops out there, but he is not one of them. He's coming up on 14 years protecting people in our community. I could not possibly be more proud of him. Keep doing what you do. Time suck has kept me sane over the last several months, largely because of episodes like the Nexium suck reminding me how much more fucked up people can be than myself. I know. Right? That is a nice benefit of that. Uh, wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. And glory be to Triple M. Sincerely, Space Lizard, Big Griff. Uh, thank you, Big Griff. And thank you to Officer Hayes. Thanks for your military service. Thanks for being one of the many good officers out there. Like you said, there are some bad ones, to be sure. Bad, bad people are in every field. But to throw them all in that lot, uh, what a shame for so many others who risk so much. You know, uh, Coeur d'Alene PD doing a lot to help out many in my neighborhood. As I finished research on the suck this week, uh, 
uh, the, or the week before it was released, sorry, this uh, huge windstorm just fucked up Coeur d'Alene. Really hit my neighborhood hard. Power lines down, phone landlines down, some cell towers damaged, uh, giant pine trees smashed through some of my neighbor's home. Uh, actually, right before I started recording, my wife said that they got a tree off of one of our neighbor's houses. Uh, I was hoping it wasn't going to be really, really bad. Uh, it completely fucking just destroyed their house. Like, right, like mashed it right in half. Uh, just big ass pine tree laying in the living room. And these poor bastards, second pine tree on their property fell over and smashed one of their cars. It was like a new car. Just bad shit. And while all this chaos is going on when the, when the storm first hit, a lot of cops out there in the in the wind, crazy wind gusts, the cold, directing traffic, helping EMTs, other first responders, et cetera. Uh, another big shout out to the Avista linemen really quick for busting ass to cut logs out, out of the roads and uh, get logs out of people's homes and get power restored. And again, yeah, thank you, Griffin. Uh, thank you to your dad. Crazy your dad once responded to a domestic disturbance call involving cult leader Warren Jeff's uh, mom and his first wife. And if you don't know, uh, yeah, Warren Jeff's, uh, well, you do know from listening that suck, but if anybody else listening doesn't know, Warren Jeff's in prison right now where he will remain for the rest of his life. Good. And stay safe out there. Griff, uh, top shelf sack, Whitney Birchfield almost died because of me. Luckily I did not kill her. Uh, she seems like a good one. And she writes, dear, he who sucks the hardest, longest, deepest, and most hilariously. I just wanted to write in and tell you about how you almost killed me. Motherfucker. <laughs> Uh, glad Monroe got those R sounds down despite your horrible parenting. A coworker of mine introduced me to the suck last year and I was instantly hooked. I'm an on-call nurse for a hospice company and I spend way too much time in my car driving around Indianapolis and basically everywhere else in central Indiana going from patient to patient. So I've been working my way through the back catalog of episodes to make the long drives less tedious. The other night, I was listening to the suck on the Darwin Awards while on my way to a patient's house. I grabbed something to eat for the drive. It was all good until you got to the point about the great Ohio drunken pig heist slash stampede slash pickup crash. <laughs> I started laughing so hard, I inhaled a French fry and started choke laughing. Since I was doing about 80 on the interstate, I pulled over so I didn't take a hasty detour straight into Nimrod's ball sack. I dislodged the offending fry and then had to sit there and hysterically laugh for a few minutes while I pondered why shit like that always happens to me and picturing a pickup full of drunk rednecks tearing down a country road with a squealing hog hanging out the back of the truck and Farmer Brown taking pot shots at him. I literally almost died laughing. <laughs> and while it's all your fault, I wouldn't have it any other way. Thank you for this podcast and all the all that you do surrounding it. I'm a mom to the four best little space newts out there, wife to my awesome husband, full-time hospice nurse, and I'm in the last semester of my master's to become a nurse practitioner. So needless to say, my life gets a little stressful from time to time. Work can get pretty fucking heavy emotionally. Time suck has become one of my favorite ways to de-stress and relax and forget that my kids are out of clean underwear. I have a paper due. I lost three patients this week or whatever other fuckery is going on. And all the wonderful things that have come from this community you've built shows that laughter really can be the best medicine and that people have the capacity for such good, even if it is super fun to talk about their capacity for the strange and fucked up. Sorry this is so long. Seriously, even though I know everyone says that. <laughs> Hail Lucifina, praise be to Nimrod and good boy Bojangles. And get your ass to Indy where the world, when the world is quasi-normal again. Husband and I would love to buy you a beverage. Thank you in person. Keep on sucking. Whitney Birchfield. Well, thank you, Whitney. Uh, very nice. I do love Indy. Uh, glad you didn't die. Uh, good on you for what you do. Hospice nurse. Holy shit. That is so heavy and so important. Uh, my grandpa loved his hospice nurses. Uh, so, so did my grandma. You're like a real life fucking angel to people. And I appreciate the shit out of the service you provide. Good on you. And good on you for getting your nurse practitioner degree. Get ready to, get ready to, to blow that bank account up. 
Uh, glad I can provide some laughs in this crazy fucking world of ours. Hail and to you. Both hands on the wheel. Unless you're dipping those fries in some ketchup. It's, it's the only real way to eat them. Uh, sad but important message now coming in from concerned sucker Amanda George, who has a very important message to get out there. Uh, she writes, Dear Dr. Reverend Suckmaster, MD, PhD, and CDC, Prophet of Nimrod, ear scratcher of our beloved Bojangles, I'm writing to ask you to do a PSA for me. To my fellow suckers whom I love, which is all of you, you beautiful meat sacks, teach your children gun safety. I know what you are thinking. Fuck off. I don't allow guns in my home. My kids are fine. Or maybe fuck off. My kids have been learning gun safety since they were knee-high to a grasshopper. They hunt. They know how to respect a gun. Or maybe I don't know what you are thinking. I mean, I'm not a psychic. I, I fucking love you, Amanda. This, this long disclosure cracks me up. Uh, Amanda then writes, I am, however, hurting. On December 18th, 2020, my 13-year-old nephew, uh, Kyron, was shot in the head point blank with a pellet gun. Please know that this was a tragic accident, not an act of malicious intent. How you ask could being shot point blank be a tragic accident? I have three words for you, stupid teenage boys. He was life flighted to Children's Mercy, spent the next 10 days in a coma. He has had three brain surgeries at this point, is currently fighting an infection in his brain that is drug resistant from the dirt the pellet had on it. The coin of his life is still in the air almost a month later. We don't know which side it will land on. He was shot because he pressed the gun to his own forehead, told his friend, it's not loaded, shoot me. And so he did. They thought the gun wasn't loaded. They thought it was just a laugh. They thought it was just a pellet gun, just a toy. They were wrong. Their lives are now forever changed. One of them may uh, still be ended. To my fellow suckers, creeps, peeps, and dummies, I know that most gun owners are very responsible. Mine are all unloaded and locked in the gun case unless they are in use. Even so, I have to say this and know it comes from a place of deep love and hope to keep anyone from dealing with a tragedy like mine. If you have a gun in your home of any kind, teach any child who comes into your home these three things, if nothing else, guns are not toys. The gun is always, always, always loaded. And they are not a share and tell moment. If you don't like guns, don't keep them around or allow them in your home. Please teach your children the same three things. My sister is not a fan of guns. Doesn't own uh, any, doesn't keep any in your home. But Kai's friend thought the pellet gun or brought the pellet gun over while she was out of the house Christmas shopping and he was playing with it and acting like an idiot of real life. He knows nothing about guns. He saw a pellet gun and thought nothing more than a toy. The young man who pulled the trigger didn't have much knowledge of guns either and thought the clip was empty and that that meant the gun was empty. That isn't how it works as we all know. So dear suckers, whether you have guns or not, please teach the young people in your lives gun safety for their protection and for their friends' protection as well. At 13, these boys have changed the lives of so many people. And if I can make uh, it so at least one of their lives is for the, one of those lives is for the better, I will. Kai will have to have at least one more brain surgery once he's fought off this infection. Suckmaster, I don't know if you'll read this. I hope you do. I hope my nephew survives this. I hope all of you take a moment to hold your children close. Tell them that you love them because as I have so forcefully learned, you never know if the last time you said it was the last time. Much love, Amanda George. P.S. Not sorry for the long message, but I did try to use easy to pronounce words <laughs> from one mush mouth to another. Well, thank you, Amanda. Oh, so sorry for the shit you're dealing with. Hope Kai is out of the woods by the time anyone hears this. And, and what an important message. Guns are always loaded. Always fucking loaded. Uh, I was raised that way. I've taught my kids Kyler Monroe that I, I probably need to remind him now. And just because you may not have guns in the house like me, uh, mine are locked in three different safes, unloaded, sometimes with fully loaded magazines nearby, but still unloaded. Uh, you know, the kids know to A, don't fucking touch them. And B, if you do, they're always loaded, right? Teach kids to hold them the right way as if they are always loaded. Be, uh, teach them to be aware of where they're being pointed at at all times. 
Uh, and teach them that even if you hate guns, because that isn't going to guarantee that your kids are going to find them in somebody else's home, as this story, you know, really describes. Uh, even fucking pellet guns. Uh, thank you, Amanda. That is a great message, and I love the way you worded it. And now let's end on some more laughs. Super sack, Josh Robley. Got Cummins lot. He writes, greetings, Master Sucker. I've been Cummins lot multiple times, but this time is even better than the time. And this, by the way, uh, I, f- I forgot about this for a second. As I'm reading this, this is one of my favorite ones ever. Uh, this time is even better than the time that a family of four heard an ad for Captain Whiskerhorn's <laughs> Pony Play Emporium. I graduated from and still live near a Catholic Benedictine university that just so happens to have a disc golf course. I'm in the parking lot of the course, waiting on some buddies, window open, listening for cars and stuff, playing with my phone, listening to the Dark Ages episode, somewhat loud, but not blaring. I'm not really paying attention, but occasionally looking around to see if any friends have arrived. You get to the part in the suck with the angry monk drill sergeant and begin, be afraid, monk. God is angry. God hates your scrawny, worthless ass private monk. You fucking maggot. (laughs) Let it play. (laughs) It continues. And as you get out of that bit, I peek up and and see three actual fucking monks. One of them was my Spanish professor while I was attending the university. It's a Catholic Benedictine university and abbey. There are monks living on campus. And apparently three of them were out on an afternoon stroll that I hadn't really seen. They didn't react, but I know they had to have heard it. It wouldn't be very monkly of them to stop and say anything. I died a little inside. I turned it down and it continued until my friends arrived. Out of all the times I've been coming to this one takes the cake. I had to share it. Keep on sucking. Josh Robley. Holy shit, Josh. Just the, the odds. The odds that actual monks would accidentally hear <laughs> just such a strange and a hateful anti-monk rank. Or anti-monk rants. I love it so much. Uh, I wonder if they talked about it privately later. They had to have prayed about it later. Dear dear Lord, why why would anyone have that much anger towards us? What have we done, Lord? Why are we maggots? Why why do they feel we're scrawny? I hope you had fun playing disc golf. I want to play that with Kyla this summer. We have a course no more than five minutes away. Uh, Thank you for the messages, everyone. Keep sending them in. Thanks for constantly reminding me how many good and cool people, caring people there really are out there. Uh, Really good to hear. Uh, kind of in times like these too, with everything everything going on, you know, culturally. So, so, so good on you for being good. And that's all for this week's Time Sucker updates. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, more Bad Magic Productions pumped out every week. Spooks with Scared to Death, late Tuesday nights. Uh, silliness with Is We Dumb Wednesdays at noon Pacific time. More Time Suck Mondays at noon Pacific time. Uh, please do not unethically medically experiment on unwilling participants, human or otherwise this week. Maybe just, you know, I don't know, don't be evil instead and just keep on sucking. Oh, oh man. So I have the cough? Yeah. My nose hurts. Uh-huh. Um, my, my Your penis hurts? Don't even worry about it. Okay. You got... You got a um, bad case. You got a bad case of sick guy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very sick. common. You got a sick guy stuff virus. Okay. And what I want you to do is I want you to take probiotic clean solution. I want you to drink all this. Okay. And I want you to spray all this in your butthole so I don't have to amputate it. Lysol. It disinfects it. It's, just, it's the quickest way to get it into your body. Okay. Trust me, I'm a doctor. That's, okay. that's well, why. why. You, yeah, I was going to ask you about your high school letterman. Track. Yeah. That's because I'm a doctor. I got it from high school. My high school doctorate class. <laughs> okay, so just on my... Yeah! 
All of it. No butthole. That goes in your. You're gonna. You could have killed yourself. That goes in your butthole. <laughs> that goes in your mouth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't they-